Hey everybody, episode 84 of the Rotto Talk Through Podcast is brought to you by Honeybuzz Fall Flavors. And before we get to the show, I just want to talk a little bit about the game Honeybuzz, which I covered on Kickstarter a couple of years ago, I think, and both Jen and I were blown away by it at the time that in a world where we have so many different honeybee-themed board games, this was the heaviest. There is so much going on. A really rich and intricate tile-laying, build-your-own honeycomb puzzle. Very uh, cool. Two different versions of being able to explore the uh, forest, to be able to find all of the pollen you need, and then a whole marketplace, buy low, sell high kind of thing going on. All of it driven by very satisfying worker placement. And this has got to have some of the coolest components we have ever seen in a Euro worker placement game. I'm absolutely blown away by it, especially the deluxe version. But more recently, the Honeybuzz Fall Flavors expansion was on Kickstarter. It really blew up, did very well, and it is now available as a late pledge manager. So if you missed out on the original Honeybuzz or the new Fall Flavors expansions, they are available to find now. If you just go to honeybuzz.rotto.com, that will take you to the uh, page so you can learn a little bit more what's in the Fall Flavors expansion. Like five new modules, and I cannot wait to try them. There's a really interesting mix. There's a couple of them that just open up tons of new variety, like alternate honeycomb tiles that actually have leaves on them. That means you can decorate towards certain goals, and also a completely different forest that also lets you go out and find fruit in addition to nectar. That's all very cool. You know, opening up and broadening your options. But what I'm most interested in are the modules that force you to make really tough sacrifices. Like the ones that actually have you retiring your worker bees to get really big in-game bonuses for different objectives and stuff like that. One of my favorite things to do in a game is make those tough choices about um, sacrificing to be able to get those rewards. So, I was already impressed by Honeybuzz and I am even more impressed impressed by fall flavors. So again, go to honeybuzz.rotto.com if you'd like to know more and uh, get to that late pledge manager while it's still available. And okay, folks, with all of that out of the way, let me just say uh, thank you for uh, supporting the show. Thanks for sending questions into the email address, questions at rotto.com. You're what keeps the show running. And this month, like always, it's going to be me answering a whole bunch of game-related questions, most of them submitted by you, but some of them submitted by the live Twitch audience. Then Jen will join me later for one game question, if I recall correctly, and then a whole bunch of personal stuff. And uh, and then, of course, we'll end with a few cute dogs. And uh, that should be it, folks. Should be a lot of fun. So hang on, and we will be right back. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. 
Okay, everybody, it is time. Um, we've got a whole bunch of stuff that has come into questions at rado.com. As always, folks, please keep the questions coming. I got no podcast without you. This is a two-way street. So let's get going, starting with Alexander, who says, I know your stance on Tabletop Simulator, and I agree, says Alexander. Uh, since COVID, a lot of publishers have started uh, putting up official mods or linking endorsed fan-made mods, and that's great. Tabletopia has also grown a lot, and they are all official, of course. My opinion, and it seems that many publishers agree, is that a free digital alternative won't hurt the game financially. What do you think? I completely agree. I think it is... Ridiculous. I do not understand. It is so easy for even the smallest independent publisher out there to get their game on either of these platforms. Um, and instantly, it's it's practically, once it's up there, it's free advertising. You can tell any of your followers, hey, our game's not going to be available for six months. Try it out now. Get excited. Spread the word. And I'm sure some people will say, but then no one will buy the game. Yes, they will. At the end, I mean, as I always say, um, you know, online poker has not replaced people going and playing poker in real life. Online chess has not stopped people from going and playing chess. Um, you know, yes, there is a subset of people who do that, but still, people want to touch things. People want to be in each other's real physical presence, and board games facilitate that more than anything else. So there is no reason, publishers, for you to be afraid of these platforms. And there are so many people, like Alexander, if I believe, I, I remember from looking at his email, he actually makes mods of games he likes for free. Um, Tabletopia, last I knew, they had just like a nice simple flat, I think it was like $300, and the company that runs Tabletopia will make a professional mod and get it on their platform so it's available for anybody for free. And you can play on mobile or on any web browser anywhere in the world. It's Everybody should be doing this, and um, they should not be afraid. Now, 20 years from now, yeah, maybe the um, you know the existence of a digital mod will have enough of an impact that enough people who might have bought it would say, I don't need to buy it, I'm all digital all the time. But you know what, that's a future where it's going to be so different anyway, because 20 years from now, when a publisher wants to put out a new game, they're going to say, oh, did you want to buy the game from us? Okay, here, that's... Uh, uh, 9.95. Download the 3D printer files because everybody's going to have 3D printers. Um, yeah, yes, you can go out and buy the game for a hundred dollars, or you can buy it direct from us for ten dollars and print it out yourself. And in that world, digital is still going to fall behind. Is still going to be left wanting. So yes, Alexander, I agree. It's ridiculous to me when publishers don't take just the tiniest bit of effort. There are so many people making mods for free, like yourself. Um, it's just it's it's one of the best free publicities you can get. Alrighty, continue with Alexander. He then adds, board gaming is about physical components and gathering around a table eye to eye and won't get replaced. So basically, Alexander agrees. But that brings Alexander to his other hobby, um, connected to board games, print and play crafting. So he asks, do I think more publishers would benefit from offering up print and play? Uh, what are my thoughts on print and play in general? Oh, I'm sorry. I, I'm sorry, Alexander. I thought you were making TTS mods. I misunderstood. I put this Word doc together a week ago, and I don't really remember exactly what was here. I think print and play is great, too. I mean, I have a personal story about print and play. Um, many Ten years ago, when I first started doing Rado Runs Through, and I was just covering retail games and, and um, oh, what do you call it, kickstarting board games was, was barely a thing at all, I was interested in backing um, Ground Floor. 
and uh, from Tasty Mitchell Games. And if you went to the Kickstarter page, you could download print and play files. So you say, don't buy it sight unseen. I mean, and they were one of the first publishers to do this. Here, download these files, print it out, try it for yourself, and then you'll know whether it's right for you. And so I did do that. And I ultimately backed it and I liked the game. But I also ended up filming a run-through of my print and play. Uh, if you if you do search for Rado, Ground Floor. I think it's Ground Floor. I'm pretty sure that's the name of the title. Uh, you know, it's, it's a it's a business simulation game. Uh, you can watch my... It's absolutely horrible looking, my really crappy looking components and all that, but it did a really great job of... of uh, um, letting players know for themselves. And yeah, there's just no reason not to do that. There's no reason not to do low ink versions so people can print it out without burning through their inkjet too terribly much um, because they're lower quality and it's more about the gameplay. Make it look nice, but don't make it look too nice. That means it does not you know, get in the way of people wanting to have the real pieces, the sculpted miniatures, the proper um, silk-screened meeples, the, you know, the, the, the nice thick uh, chipboards rather than just really crappy thin pieces of paper and all that. But people can play it. And here's the deal. Only, I'm sure you know this, Alexander, only the tiniest, tiniest, tiniest fraction of their already very tiny market that you are advertising to will actually take the time to print it out and play it. The vast majority of people say, yeah, that's too much work. But the people who do can become influencers, basically. I forget what they're called. Um, I read a marketing book back when I was in the video game industry a million years ago. And it talked about mavens which are kind of like uh, people that uh, you know the, aud- the audience as a whole listens to. And so if, a, if you get a maven on board, which these days, of course, nowadays with social media, it's, they're called influencers, then that can do everything. Get your game out. Get more people playing it. Talking about it on Board Game Geek. The worst that could possibly happen is they print it out and say, oh my God, this game is terrible. And you know, quite frankly, that's good feedback for you. Because who knows? Maybe your game is terrible. If all your testing has just been with friends and family... You might have a terrible game, and they just are too polite to tell you. So it's all upside. It's not going to affect your bottom line at all. And uh, it can only give you good, solid feedback to make the game better and help build a groundswell support for when your game eventually goes to mass market. So yes, everybody should be doing that, at least for games where it's viable. I mean, a game that is, you know, 300 cards, that doesn't make much sense. I mean, I mean... Who's going to go through all that trouble to print out and cut out and sleeve 300 cards? But, you know, for certain games, I think it makes perfect sense, and I think it's great. And personally, I mean, that ground floor print and play I did that looked so terrible, it was like the sixth or seventh video I ever did, was a big hit for me. And in fact, um, Penny Arcade, the uh, the writer on Penny Arcade, which is a very popular webcomic, actually saw my video and uh, posted about it said, hey, this guy made a video. I don't know who he is, but it really helped me decide whether I was going to back. And it was one of the first things that really got my channel getting some traction. So yeah, nothing but good can come from print and play. Even if it feels like it's terrible because, oh my God, people hate our game. It's good you find that out now before you pump all the tens, if not hundreds of thousands of dollars into producing the game. So yeah, that's my feeling about print and play. I think it's awesome. There's such a huge groundswell of support on BoardGameGeek. Guilds devoted to it. Facebook groups devoted to it. Yeah, I mean, you should... I mean, publishers, you should use that as a resource to make your games better and more popular. All right, anyway, then Alexander continues, I'll never play a game digitally. Nothing against it. I only play it with my wife. Uh, however, uh, gr- uh, 
get great joy from crafting a game that a publisher has put out digitally, meaning, you know, the print and play. Of course, I do this for my personal use and not to make money. The reason for it is, and to save money, PNP may cost me even more than the game itself. That's true. That's why, I mean, it's really kind of limited. It's a niche of people, but very passionate people like Alexander, that you are getting on board if you do this, publishers. I simply enjoy crafting it as much as I do collecting and playing games. A game would be for publishers to offer free digital versions um, uh, to the PNP community for our growing community. I don't think this would have negative effect financially. What do you think? Well, I didn't realize the third question was coming, but obviously, I think no, it's not. Um, I mean, you know, it's it's such a small group, but a very passionate and outspoken group. The vast majority of results, if if you put out a good pre and for a game that people like, all you've done is you've converted many more of them will actually want to go out and buy the game than will say, oh well, I've got this kind of janky homebrew version. I don't need to buy it anymore. There will be a handful of people like that. The same is true for the digital. But the overwhelming response will be, no, this can only increase your overall sales and your bottom line. And so, yeah. I agree. I I agree with your dream. And as I said earlier, as we move forward in time and um, we get to the point where 3D printers are as a common household item in Western houses as inkjet printers are today, it's going to change everything for for our entire industry. And uh, interesting times ahead. Okay. Anyways, just curious to hear your thoughts. Uh, It was on my mind after Encyclopedia. Take care. Okay. Thank you, Alexander. Let's move on to Ashley. Ashley says, Did someone mention ideas for a Euro Legacy shtick? Uh, because that was a question. Hey, what would I want to see? Um, what have Euro game legacy ex- experiences not done yet? And I had some off-the-top-of-my-cuff answers, but I guess Ashley has a better answer. She says, Hey, I lo- you love multi-use cards? So do I. What if there were cards inside the cards? Like an envelope or whatever. Or a Marishoika, uh uh, I've never actually tried to say that. Russian doll uh, using ca- idea, using cards. Cards within cards within cards. Probably be prohibitively expensive, but what if a card was hidden inside another card and as a decision you had to sacrifice an ability or power uh, to rip it open and hope that what you get is better? So, Ashley wants to bring loot boxes to board games. Um, it helps you, but once you rip it open, you're stuck with it. In much the same way in loot boxes, once you buy it, you don't get your money back. Uh, I keep going. I could, I could keep going on that line, but that's new and different. Uh, take a multi-use cards. Yes, it is. And don't get me wrong, I mean, I, I don't mean to be disparaging it by drawing parallels to loot boxes. I mean, the thing is, you bought it, whether you open it or not. I mean, it's a physical item, so it's it's only tangentially equivalent of a loot box. I think that's very, very cool. I mean, I know a lot of people hate the, nation, the notion of legacy games that make you destroy stuff, but I think that's a really cool idea. Now, here's the deal, though. Functionally, I mean, other than the really cool gimmick of, I guess it's kind of the reverse of, um, uh, was it um, John Declare's mythic, a uh, mystic veil, where hey, I've got a card and I can, um, you know, I get these clear things and I, you can basically construct cards, build them over time. This is kind of the opposite, you know. Hey, there's a card and I'll destroy it to find the card that's inside. You could get that same effect by hey, here's a card. I'm going to destroy it and get another card out of an envelope that was waiting. Or here's a card. I'm going to fundamentally change it by putting a sticker on it. So what you're suggesting, I think, it has a really fun kind of gimmick factor. But functionally, it's no different than what board games are already doing in the legacy space. Is that the case? Uh, is there something that a card within card could do? I mean, it is the. I mean, Mystic Veil or Edge of Darkness or, um, gosh. Uh, 
something heroes. I mean, uh, there's like three or four of these games now, uh, canvas, etc., where you, you put more cards together to make a new card where it's additive as opposed to subtractive. I guess it would be kind of interesting to take that idea and say, oh, look, here's your card. But over time, you remove stuff from it. But again, you can remove stuff from it by simply putting a sticker on it if you're making a legacy game. You don't have to actually construct this, what, as you are probably correctly guessing, would be a very, very expensive idea to put together. So I love it. I think it's a lot of fun, but I think it would be too cost prohibitive to ultimately get the same functional result as other cheaper alternatives like stickers. Alrighty, but you're not done selling the idea, Ashley, because she then adds, in the same note, you can have slot together cards where you combine abilities to make something new and you can't separate them again. Uh, each card has two abilities. You can put two together for one card with two abilities, but using the right synergy, um, you know, the one card with two right attributes. Again, this is what John D. Clare's work, what he introduced in Mystic Veil, and there's been a half a dozen other games. You know, the idea of card construction is awesome. So I think people have already done it, and they don't have to take on the extra thing of somehow fusing them permanently together. I mean, to me, what makes Legacy interesting? I mean, the most important thing about a Legacy game is the gravitas, the, the tension, the, the pressure, the, the angst you have over, once I make this choice, I can never go back. Once I rip open the envelope or destroy the card or write on it or use a sticker, it can never be undone. And yeah, having a card buried within another card um, does that, but it just is in a much more expensive way. Alrighty. Um, if that makes sense, you sacrifice two powers, you gain a power that maybe self-sustains like pro uh, proverbially sacrificing two fusion engines uh, in order to gain a cold fusion in one engine. Yeah, I think all that stuff is cool, but it can be done right now in a much less... So, and while I would love to do it, I would love to see a game that says, there's cards hidden inside your cards. That's just really, really neat. Um, I mean, heck, I'd take it one step further. You know, for a while, it was all the rage to say, look under your insert, there's hidden stuff. And now... I don't think you can get away with it anymore. I think everybody's in a who plays these kinds of games. First thing is, okay, let's open the insert. Let's see. There's nothing hidden underneath the insert. Everybody does that now. But could you hide something in the board itself? Would people notice if there was like if you could take a slit and pull a card out of it? I don't know. That's kind of fun. But it's a nice idea. Uh, but I just don't know how practical it is when there are cheaper alternatives. But thanks, Ashley. Keep those ideas coming. Alrighty, Daniel says, did I uh, did I have uh, the description? of the game I'm doing a run-through of before, prior to my addition of, important note, rude or dismissive, blah, 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 blah. I thought you did. Uh, but I might be mixing YouTube and Facebook posts. Uh, you know, long story short, uh, Daniel's asking, did I replace descriptions of games with my important note? And so what he's talking about there is, if you watch any video on my channel, it opens with a disclaimer. Because about a year ago, I made some missteps, some terrible missteps, and in the, uh, you know, using my my um, online platform for bad, quite frankly. I didn't mean to, it was, uh, but it's still, I ended up hurting people, and in the process of trying to rectify and learn where I'd made mistakes so I wouldn't screw up again, uh, people made it clear to me that, hey, you know how for years, for the entire life of Rotto Runs Through, you just let anybody post anything they want on your channel? And yeah, you'll take the time to pry up them and say why what they're saying is terrible, um, but that has ultimately led you into situations where you're talking about rape uh, or you know, other terrible, really horrible things, and you're letting them win because all they want is your attention. You're never going to convince them of anything. Why are you doing that? And I realized, why have I been doing that? Why have I been pulling my hair out for a decade interacting with trolls? Um, you know, I was on a mission to civilize. I thought I could. And, um, you know, it eventually realized, oh, my God, I have not convinced anybody. 
And all I've done is become a platform where trolls can come and complain about my SJW tendencies and um, you know get more of an audience through my hard work than they could ever get anywhere else. And so I realized, well, I should stop freaking doing that. And I should make it very, very clear that henceforth, if anybody wants to be rude or dismissive or um, aggressive or anything, you ha I have no time for you. I, you're gone. You're just done. Your post will never see the light of day. And so I retroactively added that to every single video on my channel. It's right up there, Bolt, um, because I'm trying to scare away trolls, and I'm also trying to signal to everyone that, look, if you want to come and comment on my channel, there's not going to be some dick, some jerk, who is going to try and diminish you, d diminish you or make you feel terrible or make you feel like an idiot because you're not a real gamer or whatever it is. Um, my comment channel is constantly... I check it multiple times every day. Let um, good, positive... Um, and that's not to say there can't be constructive criticisms, but they got to be constructive criticism instead of dickwad criticisms, which is what the vast majority of the internet is. So I now like to think that my little neck of the woods is... I, I am so much happier. It is so much easier for me to maintain. I'm only dealing with positive, upbeat people now. That's who tends to come. I've noticed, ever since I included that, the um, the jerks just don't show up anymore. They realized, oh, he's not letting my, my venom onto his channel. I guess there's no reason for me to come. And, and they've left! And they haven't come back. It's great. I recommend every um, YouTube channel do it. Uh, basically, there's a switch you can flip. Um, I actually, I talked about all this when I announced all of this a year ago in a video um, called My Code of Conduct. And I walked through, hey, if you have a YouTube channel, here's how you can do something similar to make sure that you will have a positive um, and... Um, you know, uplifting and affirmative, uh, you know, a wonderful community instead of a community where, oh, let's check the comments. Oh, I just don't think I want to look at that, deal with that today. Maybe I'll deal with that tomorrow. Um, so anyway, Daniel's asking, when I did that, uh, uh, so this is at the start of every one of them, and did I replace something? I'm sorry, that was a very long-winded answer, Daniel. Let me just say, no, I didn't. Um, my old YouTube descriptions were always, hey, this is the name of the game. Here's the link to it on YouTube. Uh, or I'm sorry, on Board Game Geek, and then here's the links to the final thoughts or the extended or to the, the the extended version of this video or whatever it might be. That has always been everything. There was never a oh, and by the way, here's a here's a paragraph describing the game and saying how many player counts there was or anything like that. I've never done that. Um, I have always felt that me putting the link to Board Game Geek to the, the to the page for that game was enough. Because, hell, that was an interesting video. I'll go ahead and follow the board game leak, and now I can learn all this other stuff about the game. Because I'm the biggest board game geek fan in the world. So that has always made the most sense to me. So no, um, the addition of that um, proviso at the top of all my videos has not removed anything else. In fact, I mean, I used a very cool tool called TubeBuddy, which is fantastic. I love it. I, I pay whatever it is, six bucks a month, not for all its analytics and whatnot, because it has a lot of really great automation tools. Like I can, with the push of a few buttons, retro, I can apply a string or remove a string of text or whatever I want to all whatever I have. I have like 8,000 videos on my channel now over the 10 years I've been going. So, and I could just instantly deploy that everywhere. TubeBuddy is awesome. Um, not that I'm getting paid to say that, but I, I, I highly, I love, I love it. So anyway, so no, Daniel, um, no changes there. Phew. Okay. Let's move on to Jason. 
who says, Hey, Rado, long-time listener, first-time caller. I wasn't sure if questions was the right place for this, but I figure I'd float it over to you since uh, you've never seemed to mention it. I, says Dan- Jason, have a substantial collection, 500-plus games, and it's always difficult to use the Board Game Geek uh, search options to query games. I've bestowed much information over the years about ways to get data out of BGG from my rankings, my lists, etc. But Jason has not heard uh, me mention uh, this before. Uh, but for the last several years, Jason's been using geekgroup.app. That again, for people who are listening and want to write this down, geekgroup, one word, dot A-P-P. I thought I might uh, help you and others. You can hit your collection here, sorted by rating. The site offers so many filtering and sorting options, it really opens up a whole new world. You can filter by game weight, recommendations or player counts, designers, publishers, even game mechanisms or categories. Um... And for example, here's a list from my collection, from my Rado collection, of all the flipping rights and rolling rights, or random and rights, uh, that are recommended for two players that I have added to my collection since January 1st, 2021, sorted by my ranking. Let's follow that. Let's take a look uh, and see that in action. All right, the link is coming up. And yeah, that is a very specific. That If I wanted to get that information, I could have pulled that out. Of uh, a board game geek advanced search, but it would have been a pain in the ass. It would have required multiple searches. It would have required me doing some legwork afterwards. And um, whereas you just, I mean, you've just set up a bunch of filters here, right? Change filters. Yeah, there's just a bajillion filters I can turn on about, it looks like almost every metric board game geek has. This is cool. I can see how that is very, very useful. Let's go back to um, your uh, question. Alrighty. The system really allows me, continues Jason, to hone my searches when trying to find a game for a game night. Maybe you're going to be playing a game with Jen and your mom, so you search a collection for best at, best at three. Nothing too complex, so let's reduce the weight between one to 2.5, and maybe Jen dislikes auctions and bidding, uh, so let's exclude those. And then, hey, he's done a search for that. Let's take a look at that one. Um, and somebody else is doing a commercial besides me. Uh, that's cool. Let's see. So if I come back to the browser, so that suggests, I think the 2.5 is a bit too heavy for my mom. Let me change that. Let me say, oh, that's not all right. So, uh, we're going to see if I can find it. There's mechanisms. Is it under general? Probably. Yeah. General weight, not 2.5. Let's say one to 1.5 or even zero to 1.5. What does that give me? It's thinking, it's thinking, it's thinking, because, yeah, wink, my mom can have one. So it says Ticket to Ride London, Trek 12 Himalaya, Shh, Rolled West, and Tulip Fever. I think that's pretty spot on. I think my mom could handle Ticket to Ride London, and I know she can handle, shh, and I know she can, I, I think she can handle, that's, that is, that is a very successful use case, I have to say, Jason. Well done. Although, I was able to use... I mean, the tool was so easy, I was able to tweak it on the fly and actually customize it a bit more than you did. So that's pretty cool. Let's continue. Okay. Um, all right. Anyhow, I'm not affiliated with the site. It's just so helpful. I wanted to pass it on to you and the audience. Uh, hopefully, it helps on the fly top threes on the R&R show. Oh, that's a good point. That is a very good point. Yeah, because uh, when we have to do top threes, I just always go right to the event. You're, I, I've been aware of this site for ages. I actually have it as a uh, bookmark. I just never really use it very much because I just don't think I'd ever spent much time with it. But you're right. You have made a very strong argument uh, to me and everybody watching and presumably everybody listening. So that address again, folks, if you have a sizable collection and you're having a hard time, keep it under control. What was it? It is geekgroup.app. Thank you, Jason. 
I see no questions in there, but that's okay. I think that was very worthwhile. Thanks. Okay, now we move on to Joseph, who says, The weekly contest is amazing! He's talking about the uh, every week on the R&R show where Will and I give away games if you can spot the secret word in the show. It's also great seeing how you two plan it out during the pre-show. I was wondering, however... What would it you do if Ruel or I forgot to say the secret word? I'm changing my tenses throughout. Sorry, folks. Uh, I imagine it'd be a tricky edit. That's a very good point. It hasn't happened yet. I know when I sign up for I'm going to do the secret word, I actually have it written down right next... Behind the scenes... For folks who watch the R&R, I have literally just Notepad open. And I have a file called banner.txt. And whatever string is at the top row of that file is uh, what's going to appear on the banner of the run-through. And so when we change banners, we are literally just editing a text file. So when we put number 8... Between Two Castles of Mad King Ludwig, number seven, to want and sue you or whatever, we are literally copying and pasting lines of text. And so to ensure that I don't miss, that my secret word is to pay, I have to say to pay. I literally put the word to pay right next to the text I'm copying and pasting so I can't miss it. So I haven't missed one yet. I don't think Ruel has missed one yet. But if we got to the end of a show, and then the live audience said, Hey, listen! Using the little stickers they can use with audio um, stings to get my attention. And then we said, We never said it. Oh my God, Ruel, you said you were going to say it. You never said it. I think what I would have to do is, I would probably say, Okay, that's fine. I'll clean this up later. Um, and I would, like I said, I'd have to make a tough edit. I'd go back and I would listen for some place where I could slip the word in. And I mean, I've... I hate editing video, but I've been doing it for years now, and I'm pretty good at it. And I've even gotten to the point now where I have a consistent recording setup. This this third bedroom in our house, which is 100% devoted to all my games and all my recording stuff. Every time I sit down and record, the sound quality is pretty much exactly the same. So there have been occasional videos where if you're looking close at my lips, you'll see, oh, everything's lip sync, but then one word is completely, or like one sentence is completely wrong, and then it goes back correct again. That's because I did go back in and, okay, I'm going to completely re-record that entire sentence because it was really wrong. And if people are looking at my lips in the little picture-in-picture, they'll see I go off and most people don't even notice. So that is what I would do. I don't like it. It's kind of a lot of work, but hopefully it just won't happen. But that answers your question, Joseph. And lets other people know that, did you know you have a chance to win a game every week if you watch the R&R show and catch the secret word? Anyway, let's move on to uh, Matthias, who says that... um, Let's see. He, he, He points out that I've mentioned many times that the audience should ignore my final thoughts. It's come up again in a recent podcast, actually. And while Matthias does understand what I'm talking about, uh, he also thinks it would be use- more the, the thoughts are more useful than I think. Some of the audience have been following for ten years, and uh, so even though uh, they, even though I know very little about you, random listener, you, random listener or viewer, knows me and Jen very well. Um, you know. Matthias Kennedy's, we know which aspects that I tend to like and dislike about a game. We know how important a two-player support is in the absence of negative player interaction, etc. Also, um, uh, the final thoughts are usually not just an opinion, but a recap of quite a lot of aspects of the game. Now, I'll agree with you there. I recognize every time I say, please ignore my final thoughts... I would want to proviso. Please ignore the subjective opinion portion of my final thoughts, but watch it anyway, because there's probably a few things that didn't come up in the run-through that I wanted to mention in passing about this particular feature or that particular feature or you know um, some kind of limited time offer or who knows what. So 
I'm really doing the audience a disservice when I say disregard my final thoughts, when really what I mean is disregard my final subjective personal opinions about the quality of the gameplay. It's just, that's not quite as pithy as please ignore my final thoughts, as you can imagine. Anyway, though, so... Matthias continues, uh, When I first read a rule book and then watch your final thoughts, or even a roundup, I generally have enough information whether it'll be a good fit for us. I rarely watch the run-through these days. Totally understandable. Uh, that leads me to the question. Don't you and Jen... Oh, okay. All right. Well, let's see. Before we go into the question, here's... I, I want to explain myself, because I'm guilty as charged. I really shouldn't say that. But I feel I have to. I, that I am overstating. Because I am trying to course correct, not for you, Matthias, who have been watching for 10 years and know my predilections. I am overstating that for the brand new watcher. This is the first video they've ever seen from me. And they go, and, you know, and they're relatively new to games. And they're like, whoa! Wow, he really likes that game! I bet it's the best game I've ever played! I should run around and buy it right now from Amazon! Boom, 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 done! And that's it. That happens a lot. And that makes my skin crawl to think of any time that somebody has picked up a game based on my recommendation and then it turns out not to be a good fit for them. Because I won't deny the fact I'm a very good salesman. I have had tons of actual sales training going all the way back to high school when I was trained literally to be a door-to-door vacuum cleaner salesman. Uh, you can watch the R&R show for that backstory. Uh, in college, I worked for a year at a uh, phone survey place. And so you had to be a salesman to get the, once you got somebody on the phone, to keep them on the phone and answer your 5 million questions about how you're voting, um, you know, in the uh, 90 to election, you know, and not lose them, you need to be a salesman for that. And then um, after I was in the video game industry, I once again got media training from world-class professionals so for, um, you know, that, you know, my publisher paid for so that when I would go out to the media, I would know how to put forward a message that would resonate with viewers. So I am, I mean, not for everybody, of course. Some people just can't stand my cadence, my kind of goofy, offbeat, uh, you know, spontaneous nature. I totally understand I'm not for everybody, but I still think I'm kind of objectively a very good salesman when I put my mind to it. And so I very, very much worry about using my skills for ill, evil and people ending up... I mean, if you ever meet me at a convention and if the first thing you say is, oh, I've gotten so many games because of your videos, my first question every time is, oh, please tell me I haven't steered you wrong. Please, because that's that's I'm terrified of that because games are freaking expensive. And I don't want people making a mistake because of me because they don't understand. They don't have the 10 years of experience that you do, Matthias. And so that's why I feel I have to take a stance and I have to say, look, I know I just, in my final thoughts, I made it sound like the second coming. I know it's the best thing since sliced bread, or at least that's what you would be led to believe based on how excited I personally am based on my personal peccadilloes. Please disregard that because I... It took me 10 minutes, 20 minutes to record that. It took me hours to make the run-through. And if you watch the run-through, you should be able to decide for yourself it's a ton. You don't have to trust my opinion because you and I are different people. And you're still new at games and you haven't quite realized that, that there is no such thing as a universal game that works for everybody. So that's why I am overstating my case. 
Because, hey, the people who've been here for 10 years, you know full well to ignore that or to, more importantly, ignore the uh, personal opinion or you know my opinion so well that you can parse it, as you say. But new viewers can't. And so that I'm addressing that message towards them primarily. Sorry. Uh, it's something that gets asked every once in a while. Why do I say that? Um, be, and that's why. I just wanted to put that out there. So if anybody ever asks again, I can say, go, hey, go check out this particular episode of the uh, Rado Talks Your Podcast. But anyway, to your actual question now, Matthias. Don't um, Jen and I have reviewers, podcasters, artists, authors that we don't know in person, but we know, uh, but we, uh, but, uh, but um, who we know, we, we got to know so well via media that their opinion or final thoughts are actually useful or valuable data to us. Uh, if so, do you have some gaming or non-gaming examples? Um, Jen does not pay attention to media of any sort at all. Not at all. Jen, the only thing she watches on YouTube is um, uh, 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 videos by fellow glassmakers teaching techniques. If you were to look at her YouTube history, it's 90% people in front of a torch showing uh, some cool way to make some twist glass in 2,000 degree heat. That's all she watches on YouTube. The only thing she watches on Instagram, which she's kind of got it addicted to, you know, just flicking through little short videos, is funny dog and cat videos and people doing amazing things. If it's a review, she skips right past it. She doesn't care. The uh, only place she gets any kind of opinion about anything is um, uh, comments on Amazon. You know, that kind of a thing. And of course, we don't know anybody there. So I can say definitively for Jen, no, there's not a single person out there other than just friends and family, people in her personal life who would recommend a game or a show or a movie or a book. That's the only recommendation she cares about at all. So um, in my case, oh yeah, there's plenty of people who I can definitely, I know exactly. I mean, when a video, Tom Bassel rarely surprises me. I've watched enough of his videos. I know what he likes. I know what hangups he has. I know what he'll rant about. I know what he'll rave over. And um, honestly, because of that, I've pretty much stopped watching his videos. I, I don't need his videos. Once upon a time, Tom was a very good resource for me. And once upon a time, he misled me because I thought, oh, well, he's a really experienced guy. He knows what he's talking about. He must be right. And over time, I realized, oh, no, he's often wrong. He's often very, very wrong. Um, you know, no offense to Tom. Hey, we're, we're, I mean, we all have our own personal things. And, um, you know, just, I'm sure Tom would agree. Uh, his opinions should not be applied universally to everybody. And uh, so... Uh, yeah, I mean, it's certainly the case, but for me, I mean, you're a longtime fan ties, you know, I don't get any game sight unseen. I read the rule book for any game I'm ever going to look at. I don't care if Tom liked it, or Shut Up and Sit Down liked it, or a heavy cardboard liked it, or a thinker themer liked it. It doesn't matter to me. Well, um, because, uh, I mean, because as we've just discussed, I know full well that, um, you know, they have their own things and I can pretty much easily guess whether they're going to like it or not. Ultimately, at the end of the day, the proof is in the pudding. Who published it? Who designed it? What does the rule book say happens? Those are the only three metrics I care about when I am deciding whether I'm going to get a game or not, or whether I'm going to accept a game for reviewing. Um, yeah. So I, I, it's certainly there. It's not of any great use to me because... You're right. It's it's so obvious. What's the point? Now, that's because it's literally my job. Oops. My earbud fell out. It's literally my job to read what? At the very least, hundreds of rule books every year. 
I, I literally, that is my career. Um, it's, the mo- it's pr- maybe the most important part of my job is reading these rule books. I realize most of my audience does not have time for that. That's why most of my audience watches my videos because they've got the rest of their life to do. So, um, yeah, again, I, I, I only make that stance to try to counteract um, the very, very easy to fall into trap of, oh, this guy he seems fairly articulate. He knows a lot about games and he says it's great. I should buy it. I don't need to watch the run through. And like, geez, Louise, you need to watch the run through more than anybody else if that's your response to my final thoughts, which is why I've always been so happy that at this date, still, um, an average run through, about only half of the total views go towards the final thoughts, which is to say, if, if the game has 10, if the run through has 10,000 views, the final thoughts is going to have five or 6,000 views as a general, or even less. And that's the way, uh-huh, uh-huh, I like it. Uh-huh, uh-huh. Uh, because there's too much riding on this. These games are expensive and getting more expensive all the time. Alrighty, next up, Matthias says, I hope I'm pronouncing that correctly, by the way. Uh, Matisse, may, it might be, maybe I should just say Matt. Matt then continues. Um, you've said before that the BGG ranking rating system is flawed, which Matt uh, 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 views as a fact. And because of that, when I get rid of a game, I remove its rating. But, um, as Matt said above, since we know, uh, the audience knows my gaming taste very well, the rating that I gave a game is actually very, very fast and even um, reliable. First check of a game, see if it's interesting. Well, here's the deal, Matt. If you want that, just, there's 50 billion ways to get in contact with me. I am Rotto on BoardGameBeak. I am Rotto on Twitter. I check every day. I am Rotto Runs Through on Facebook. I am Rotto Runs Through on Instagram. I am uh, Rotto on Patreon. I am, you, you, you can um, add comments uh, on um, any video on anything on YouTube, and I will see it. If you want to know, if you want that quick and easy, just ask. I'll tell you. I'll, I'll, I'll tell you everything. I've never... I mean... And, that's my feeling because everything I said about the above applies even more to a simple little, oh, Rado gave that a two. It must be the biggest pile of garbage in the history of games. If Rado gave it a two out of 10, oh my gosh, that must be a, a burning dumpster fire of a game. When in fact, no, no, um, I would give base, you know, I, I would give a two to, uh, um, I mean, because of my predilections, I, I, I do not feel it is responsible for me to wield the power I have um, to just, you know, to destroy games. Uh, which is why, if I didn't like a game, sorry, you don't get a single-digit number. You get me actually writing out in paragraph form why I got rid of that game. That's what you get because I'm not going to let you make a decision off of a single number. And again, not because of you, Matt. You're an experienced viewer. You've been with me for a decade. I'm talking about all the new people because there are hundreds of thousands of people discovering board game, modern board games, for the first time every single day around the world. That's not an exaggeration at all. Talk to Scott Alden sometime about how many new subscribers he gets, or you know, um, to his uh, to Board Game Geek every year, and. That it's I, I do not want to lead those folks astray. Um, which is why I mean honestly, I should take all my rankings off Board Game Geek completely. Because uh, me giving something an 8.73291, it could be just as problematic. Um, but at the least in that case, there's a video. And at least if you go watch the video, you can decide for yourself. I mean, if you go, I mean it's it's um it's so important. I'm gonna bring back the browser. 
uh, sorry for folks who can't see, but if you go to games.rado.com um, and you get a list of every run-through I've ever done, and you can see, hey, my number, Legends of Andor is my 32, number 32 of all time, right? Uh, Predaporters are my number 65 of all time. That doesn't mean you're going to like it just because it's uh, in my top 100. And by the same token, um, you know, uh, something I rated low, like uh, Eaten by Zombies, I gave a 7.1. For you, it might be a 10, depending on who you are. So the important thing is, yeah, you can see my number, but more importantly, you can click the the happy little button right next to it and then watch the run through and decide for yourself. That is what I always want. Stay away from my personal subjective opinions. Watch the run through because that will help more than anything. So that's just where I come from. Anyway, though, let's get back. So, and I appreciate you sticking with me for a decade. Hopefully, I haven't lost you with this. Anyway, though, so uh, that's why I am loathe. And honestly, I often feel like I should create a new Board Game Geek account that nobody knows what it is and keep all my ratings there. That's really what I feel I should do um, when it boils right down to it because people are too quick to, I don't have time for this. Just tell me what the best game of the year is. Okay, fine. I'll buy it. Done. Moving on. And then again, it's like, oh my God, I hate this game. I don't. That happens all the freaking time and anything I can do to ensure that I'm not part of that is a good thing in my case, or in, to my mind. Okay. Anyway, then we get to Lance's question. And he basically tells a story of reaching out to another media content person, and he had a less-than-ideal response, he felt. He was uh, left a little unsatisfied. So I'm not going to go into that, not going to litigate that, other than to say, Lance, I'm sorry that happened. I know the person in question. I have spent many, 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 many hours with this person. I know they're a good person. Sometimes they just get into a groove. It happens to me too. Sometimes somebody will ask me a question that just prompts me to, boom, okay, I've got this almost pre-prepared rant. I'm just going to slip that in here. And I think that's what happened with you. I'm sure it was no hard feelings, but still, I'm sorry that you found that unsatisfying. But your question to me, Matt, is, as a media creator, what are my thoughts on how to answer people as someone who is uh, requesting questions, yeah, because I, 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 I say, hey, folks, give me questions to the podcast. And do I try to think about the way people will take my answers into consideration? Um, yeah, that's a very good question. And I, I, I thought that was actually worth talking about, to talk a little bit about me and how I go about it. And this goes beyond just people sending questions to questions at rao.com. Folks, send your questions to questions at rao.com or I got no show, as I've mentioned several times now. Um, this goes into everything, every interaction I have on the internet. I always try to treat each and every one of them as if um, the it's not an email, it's not a comment, it's, it's not a meme, but it's a real human being standing in front of me or sitting at the same table I'm sitting at. I always try to do that. And now, first of all, I don't always succeed at that. I am human, and sometimes I fail. I mentioned briefly earlier, last year I failed epically poorly at this. And one of the most... I mean, I I still... I'm beating myself up over the events of last year, uh, which you can find out if you go and check out, um, do a search for Rado Code of Conduct. That can lead you to what had come before. Um, uh, or podcast episode of this podcast, episode 70, if you would like to know more about the biggest mistake I ever made as a grown-ass man um, talking about board games and ended up hurting a lot of people. And so, if, uh, yeah, uh, Rado Talks Through, episode 70, if you want to know more about that, if you've missed it. But anyway... Um, and then subs- a- a- after that, the, uh, what do you call it? The, the code of contact that came out of it. 
So, but I still try to. And that is certainly the case when I'm answering questions. And I will admit, I mean, like probably what happened to you, sometimes people ask a question that's adjacent to an answer I already have queued up in my head that I'm that I'm more than happy to talk about again. And sometimes I go the wrong way. It can be a misunderstanding or whatever. But I mean, it's always how I've tried to pursue myself. And you know, back when I used to deal and try to interface with uh, trolls and try to get them to be more civil, I would actually try and look. Look, can you just imagine for half a second that you and I are actually sitting at a table together at a restaurant? Is this really what you would say to me? Really? Wouldn't it be something more like this? And if so, why didn't you say that to me in, per, uh, you know, in your comment? Why did you go that other way? I used to do that all the time. And what I always found is it just made the troll go away because they weren't having any fun anymore. And that's why, as I discussed earlier, I realized, okay, I was banging my head against the wall for no good reason for years. But um, I still do that. And I'm, I don't always succeed, but that is always always my goal, that I try to put myself... I I always try to assume... I mean, it's so easy for us, for board game media people, to forget... I mean, this kind of dovetails into the last question, too, about um, the vast majority of games I cover, I got for free. How can I meaningfully give estimations of the relative value of this game when I got it and most every other game I'm covering for free? My my voice is completely invalid there. And um, I have to remember that the people I'm talking to... Hey, maybe this is the... F- just because I have played this particular mechanic... Oh my god, I just said mechanic. Ah! This particular mechanism 5,000 times. And to me, it's a little old and a little stale. Doesn't mean it's not really well done. And for somebody else, this is the first time they'd ever see that mechanism. And it's perfect for them in a, with the mesh of theme. I always try to bear that in mind. That um, you know the other person is a real human being. I assume... Um, I, mean, I try to go out of my way to assume... That uh, their question, you know, even if I think it's a stupid question, comes from a legitimate place, which is you know the culmination of their life experiences. And their life experience might mean, hey, it's only the third game they've ever played. And just because I think it's boring and old hat, I mean, I've, I've kind of dovetailed into subjective opinion about games and how I kind of do that. Because often there will be, I, I will see, I will cover a game and I'll say, wow, this is a really great example of X. And I will see lots of other viewers saying, oh my God, X is so done to death. Why are you giving us more X? And that makes no sense to me because it does what it set out to do. It did, I mean, roll and write. So many reviewers, whenever they review a roll and write, they, they have to throw in, man, I'm so sick of roll and writes. And here we go with another. All right, let me tell you about it. And if you're anything like me, you're sick of roll and writes too. And I'm like, I would never say that. I mean, first, I'm not sick of roll and writes, but even if I was, I'd say, well, you know, personally, having played 200 roll and writes over the last three years, I feel like I've seen it all, but still, I can say this game um, does this particular role in writing so well. It, it, you know, it achieves this and this and this. And while honestly, it could have been a bit better about that. I think as a whole, if you're looking for a game that has this particular mechanism and it's combined with this theme, it might be something for you. That's, I mean, I. It, you will often hear me say, it might be something for you. Because who cares if it's something for me? And that's reflective of my overall attitude, trying to project my mind, trying to walk a mile in the other person's shoes. And that is certainly the case with these as well. For a while, in the pers- for a couple of years, in the personal section of the podcast, there were a few folks who were regularly, you know, who were Trump supporters and whatnot, and were regularly writing in, I'm not going to say inflammatory, but... Um, no, I mean, I mean, because there was no malice to them whatsoever. But they were, they were inflammatory. They were inflammatory, but still coming from a good place. And um, sometimes it was very frustrating for me um, to try to say, 
Oh, Jack. Jack, you know who it, you know, it's another Jack attack, folks. Let me dismantle everything Jack just said. And it'd be so easy for me to, to basically dismiss Jack when, in fact, he's a good person. He just has different worldview than I do as a result of his life experiences led so far. And so, Jack, I hope you would agree that no matter how frustrating it was, eventually I had to say, I can't handle this anymore. Jack, could you please hold off on the attacks for a while? And Jack has very graciously done so. Thank you very much, Jack, wherever you are. But I hope Jack and others would say that I always handled their questions from a place of respect. And um, even if I found them, you know, the, the, uh, the observations questionable at best, let's say. And I, to be fair, not always. Sometimes I have a real sarcastic streak. Uh, my wife has referred to me privately, she wouldn't like me saying this, as a real sarcastic asshole many, many times in our relationship uh, because she gets the full brunt of my sarcasm. And most of the time she really likes it and it makes her laugh. Um, but it is something I try to tamp down wherever possible when I'm on camera because not everybody has been married to me for over 30 years. So I, I'm always trying to keep that in mind. It's very important. Okay. Then let's move on to Ross, who has decided to black sleeping gods distant skies because Ross loves giant worlds where you're free to explore in board games. Well, that's what Secret Gods was, so I'm sure Distant Skies will be fantastic for that. Um, Ross uh, says I probably already covered this, but the idea of big lengthy games makes Ross curious to know what my relationship with a legacy or campaign game is like in terms of my lack of time uh, gameplay schedule. Slash uh, busy schedule. Uh, whenever one of my listeners or viewers suggests an idea that involves me playing a games that are not part of the queue of games that are waiting. I mean, in the room next door, I've got 50-some games that need to be filmed because they have been sent for coverage by publishers. And so I always go to that. I just don't have time to do a really in-depth retrospective on something that it would be a very cool idea and make a really good video. I just don't have time. So Ross is pointing that out. Uh, there's a permanent shelf of new games that are always waiting to be played. Um, right, in the back of my mind, I, I can't put them away. Uh, because So yeah, he's summed up. It makes total sense. Um, and I've also, says Ross, heard you say how when you retire, you're finally going to get to dive into Seventh Continent and, and other games like that, which I don't have time for. So Ross is pretty sure... Um, that the time that Jen and I used to play Gloomhaven had to stop. Ross is correct. For almost a year, at least nine months, Jen and I set aside every Sunday was Gloomhaven Day. We got, there was no reason to play it. We'd already covered the game, uh, you know, and uh, you know, put it in top tens and all that. We were playing it just for fun, uh, to to no effect other than just enjoying it because we loved it so much. Right, but eventually that had to stop. Um, but to bring it back to the original question, how do I feel um, about having to play through an entire campaign or legacy game when it becomes part of my job in order to film a Final Thoughts video. I don't have... or you know, um, Ross says that I don't have time to play a standalone game more than a couple of times before filming the run-through and moving on, and yet I definitely have completed big, time-consuming projects like Rise of Queensdale, Pandemics, uh, Legacies, Clank Legacy, etc. And of course, uh, there are also campaign games like Alexander Fister narratives, such as Cloud Age and Maracaibo, where you've played up to ten times, that is true, uh, to get through the stories. Um, when you're playing these, are you able to enjoy the experience? Or by the time your game seven or eight rolls around, are you stressing, thinking, this is taking too long, I've got too many games I need to play? Or do you go into it knowing uh, that you'll only be playing this one game over and over for about a week and you're okay with that so long as you can plan around the, the, uh, the time commitment? Wow, that question turned out to be longer than I thought it would be. Yes. Um, it's a good question. And I think you nailed it. Yeah. I, it's Well, first of all, 
more and more. <clears throat> uh, I got like uh, like uh, the new Maracaibo Uprising expansion. I would love to play through that storyline. I have not done so. I have played through two, the first two chapters of it. <clears throat> and then I just went ahead and I peeked at the rest to get a sense for what else was going to happen in the storyline. Because the reality is, for those kinds of things, little changes and tweaks, I don't need to play those to get a good sense for what the core gameplay experience has. A legacy game, the core experience is the idea of the game changing and morphing and evolving. So I can't really speak to the overall quality of the game without experiencing it. So a legacy game I'll still play through because generally speaking, legacy games make huge changes. And actually, a legacy game that makes almost no changes at all, I'll probably just stop after a few games in and then just open the rest of the envelopes and just, okay, oh, look, yep, confirmed. Hardly anything changed. This didn't even need to be a legacy game. Um, because you're right, I just don't have time. I I have to, you know, and that's another reason, by the way, circling back to the earlier thing about ignore my final thoughts. Bear in mind, folks, I haven't played this game most of the time, 10 times, 20 times, 30 times, 50 times, 100 times. I've played it a couple of times. And I've filmed a run-through, and that's it. So that's another reason to take uh, all of that into account when I'm talking about what I think is good or bad. Now, having played, um, what, over 2,000 games over the last decade, I feel like I can get a pretty good idea of how good a game is from my first play. I can get a pretty good idea of how good a game is just from reading the rule book, quite frankly. And I'm, I personally find myself to be very rarely wrong because I... And probably, oops, one of the one of the uh, most experienced board game players in the world, quite frankly. Um, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm not the only one. I'm not saying there aren't other people who have played literally thousands of sessions of individual games over the last decade, but there aren't very many of us. And um, so, but that aside, I totally understand why somebody would say you didn't play that game 15 times. You have no right to comment on the depth of it. And I'm like. Dude, I played 3,000 games. I, I think I got it. I know what this game is doing. I knew what it was doing when I read the rulebook. But anyway, sorry. Uh, that's as an aside. It's really... it's uh, you know These campaign games that are popping up all the time... Uh, I don't feel... Like, I mean, I played all the way through one storyline of Seventh Continent. And then I looked all the way through a second one. And I saw that, oh, those are some really interesting changes. But the game is still 85% the same. You're just seeing a new story, not new gameplay necessarily. And that made me realize, okay, I've got it. I've played enough. And with every one of these games, it's going to be a different threshold where, oh, you know what? That's a third game in a row where nothing changed. Let me just go ahead and see, oh, nothing's ever going to change. Okay, we're done playing this game. I'm not going to finish this legacy experience. As opposed to this one where, geez, Louise, we just opened a box and everything changes. I guess we got to keep going. And as you suggested, I will just have to adjust the schedule around that. Um, on months when a new pandemic legacy comes out, and I mean, you to truly understand the experience you'll have there, you do have to play through because I mean, you know, they radically change over the course of the game. Then, hey, you know what? That month, there. Were, if you go back and look, there were probably fewer um, run-throughs than the previous month, and there were definitely more run-throughs the following month to make up for the fact. And I will not um, deny the fact that I'm probably going to be under a lot of stress, and so will Jen, trying to catch back up after we basically took a vacation from the regular amount of output that we have to do to be able to really dive deep on this game that I that felt like at the time really deserved it. So yeah, it's it's variable from game to game, but I am finding more and more. Like I said, most recently, I would love to play through all of the, Mar the Maracaibo Uprising storyline expansion. And it kind of breaks my heart a little bit that I couldn't do that 
but I still wanted to make sure nothing really changed. So I, I know the whole storyline. Someday I would like to go back and play it and experience it, but I know how it goes. And I'm, I'm, on one level, it was kind of fun to see that, especially because of the lens I looked through it, having played 3,000 plus games, that, okay, I, 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 oh, I can see what you do. Oh, I, oh, that session would be a lot of fun. I hope to play that session someday, that chapter seven, because that's going to be really cool when that character shows up. But the story is spoiled, unfortunately. I mean, so that's pretty much how I handle it. Again, it's it's variable from game to game, but more and more I am finding I do not, for these kind of campaign experiences, have to put quite so much time in to, to get a real sense of the experience. Okay, and then last question from Ryan. I hope you'll share your thought on Thinker Themer's initial response to the Viticulture World expansion. I know you're a big fan of theirs, and Ryan found the video very powerful. My wife loves them, and I, and I says Ryan, need to pay more attention to their content. Yes, I, I, am, I am in awe. <coughs> wow. It's totally a coincidence that... Uh, somebody just hit my throat right there. I was going to say, I was in awe of uh, Amy and Maggie having the bravery to step up. I mean, knowing full well from personal experience, the gates of hell they would be opening up of abuse they would get for just stepping forward and saying, hey, you know what? We were really excited about this game and we were disappointed that this happened. And we, we, we hope in the future things will be better. That's it. That, that, you know, that's, that's the TLDR, too long, didn't read summary of their video. And yet I know firsthand, because I know them, um, just what a wall of fire came their way. And honestly, I admit, here's the thing, I actually saw their video before they made it public, because coincidentally, the week they were going to make that public was the week that they were going to debut on my channel with their Radlands video. And then they realized, oh, we, ha- we, we the timing is we have to, we worked it out with Jamie, we're going to put this up on a Thursday, and then we were going to do the Radlands thing on Friday. We were thinking maybe, we'll tell you what, here, why don't you watch the video now and tell us what you think? And um, maybe you'll agree that we should just put off Radlands for a week because it's going to be a long weekend. And um, so I got to see it early. And uh, yeah, I mean, I, I I was moved to tears by it. And more importantly, I, it was incredibly eye-opening because here's the thing. Uh, for folks who don't know, uh, Viticulture World is a wonderful co-op expansion for Viticulture that introduces um, seven new modules you can play through, each one modeled after a different region of the world and a different moment in history. And one of them is set in South America, and Maggie of Amy and Maggie uh, from Thinker Themer is from South America. Viticulture is one of their favorite games, so it was the first thing they wanted to try. And Maggie was dumbstruck when she got into the game and saw, oh, yeah, okay, this is about the early history of Viticulture in, in South America and all that. And oh... Here's Cortez, and here's Pizarro. Um, you know, uh, literal monsters of history. And the game expects me to say, oh, you know what? I'm going to hire Pizarro and help me succeed at my vineyard. And and it was it was just such a shock to them. that how could, I mean, why would anybody think that's a good idea? Why would anybody think that a genocidal... Putting a genocidal mass murderer in a gentle, warm, family-friendly game like Viticulture made any sense whatsoever? And, and I mean, you know, I mean, because, well, hey, um, if, if they did one, um, you know, in the Rhineland, should they put Hitler in? Should there be a Hitler card? You can just, oh, hey, you know, I mean, here's the Hitler card, um, because they're, they, you know, this was a real historical character from this time in history. It's like, no, nobody would do that. But because of, of, uh, because of cultural expectations, because of the passage of time, because of, you know, just not, of, of ignorance on a lot of people's parts, Jamie. 
and me, I'll say me too, we didn't even think twice about that. I had actually played the South American map before I saw Amy and Maggie's, and I saw Pizarro, and, and, and there was like a line in the uh, set about, hey, just so you know, we, we do not, um, uh, you know, we, we stand against everything these characters uh, stood for, but they were uh, important elements of history, so here they are in the game. And I thought, oh, okay, that's pretty cool. They put that in, and well, yeah, it's too bad. There's, a, but I didn't really think twice about it because I didn't look at it through the lens of what was really happening. I was effectively playing Hitler cards, and if it had been a Hitler card, I was like, oh, gee, what? And um, so anyway, so they stepped forward. They were brave enough to point out that well, um, just because you're not as familiar with my culture. Um, if you're trying to recreate my culture, how about do it in a positive, uplifting way? How about not put a literal historical monster on the same footing as people who made positive contributions to the to my culture and history? And so, and Jamie said, "Oh my gosh, you're right, of course." And so he ex- took great expense to basically reprint replacements of those cards, where he actually put real South American business leaders, including um, um, a woman from South America who I went actually afterwards I went and looked her up on Wikipedia at the time, she was literally one of the richest people in the world. And it was like an incredible success story. And it's like, yeah, why wouldn't you... If if you're making a game about the history of viticulture um, for families um, in South America, why wouldn't you put positive uplifting things that people could aspire to? You know, moments from history that um, are aspirational and and inspirational, rather than, oh, by the way, let's just kind of whitewash the history about this uh, genocidal maniac um, and just put him right next to all these other like scientists and monks and stuff like that. And yeah, and so it was eye-opening to me. And I think I won't be able to go forward. I mean, because I've responded to stuff like that in the past. My go-to response is I was pretty much the only media person saying when Five Tribes came out half a decade ago, wow, it's really crap that there are these slave cards here. This is just completely out of place and shouldn't be here. What? How is this a good idea? And eventually they changed it. But I mean, that was so pardon the pun, black and white. It was just so omnipresent. It was literally a black man bound head down in chains. And it was on a card that was right next to piles of gold and saffron. It's like, this is so horrible. Um, that, I mean, I, I was able to respond to that. I was able to internalize that. But, you know, something more subtle to my worldview as Pizarro and, uh, and Cortez being in a game about making wine... That just was in one eye and out the other, and I didn't think about it twice. And I'm so thankful that Maggie and Amy were brave enough to step forward, because I think it will ultimately make the industry a better place. I think all publishers will look to the example that Jamie... Because all publishers say, I could have made that mistake too. We just didn't think about it. But now we will. And I think that's an example of the industry getting better and better and better as we move forward. It's baby steps. I wish it was faster. I wish human evolution and societal change could move at the speed it needs to. It never does, but it is moving. And um, and, and, and Amy and Maggie were incredibly moving, and I recommend everybody watch. Uh, just do a search for Thinker Themer Viticulture World on YouTube. You'll find it. It's, it's a powerful video. I think it's an important video. And... Give them a like and a thumbs up and a subscribe because I can't tell you what a wall of hate. They actually, another thing, my own connection to it. So we ultimately agreed, yeah, okay, that's fine. I mean, I was like, I'm inspired by your video. Your video has changed me. I, I'm so proud that you're going to be a part of my channel. I, I, I don't want to wait, but they're like, no, 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 let's wait because they have more experience in this than me. And then, um, you know, I talked to them over that weekend because 
they had never um, turned on the, okay, we're getting so much fire and so much heat and so much hate, such an unending wall of anger and hate, because all we said is, hey, could everybody just be a little bit more inclusive and think about other people's thoughts and feelings? And that, uh, you know, that they actually reached out to me because they wanted information that I knew because I've been during, doing the, hey, co- no comment gets through without my approval. I knew how that system worked back and forth. So they had some question. well, okay, if we turn this on, what's going to happen is this and that and the other thing. And I, and so I was I was so happy I could help them a tiny, tiny bit um, because I know they had such a rough, rough weekend there. And um, again, that's why I, to, I'm, I'm glad you brought it up, Ryan, um, because uh, you are right. Um, Amy and Maggie are freaking heroes of mine that they were willing to step up and do that. And I'm, I'm glad it made a big difference to you too. Phew. Okay, folks. And that is it. We are done with the um, general purpose game questions. However, there is a live studio audience watching me right now. So I am going to go and check to see if we've got any questions from the audience. We might want to throw in here as well. And then after we're done with that, we'll move on. There's a game question or two for Jen, and then we'll get to the personal stuff. So let me take a looky-loo. Your brain needs support, and new Ollie Brainy Chews are a delightful way to take care of your cognitive health. Made with scientifically backed ingredients like Thai ginger, L theanine, and caffeine, Brainy Chews support healthy brain function and help you find your focus, stay chill, or get energized. Be kind to your mind and get these nootropic chews at Ollie.com. That's O L L Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Okay, folks, looks like we've got a few. Uh, First of all, um, MG101, which stands for Mom Gamer. I always say, hey, Mom, and I always feel weird every time I say that. i got to say, hey, MG. Uh, She asks, Gloomhaven used to be my lifestyle game. What lifestyle game do I constantly go to now or wish I could go to these days? That is an excellent question. Well, in the near future... I'm hoping it's going to be Frosthaven, because that's coming. It's coming soon. And right now, it should be Gloomhaven Jaws of the Lion, because we only played the first five missions that. I mean, as a continuation of what I said, I I played the first five missions because the truly new thing in Gloomhaven Jaws of the Lions was the way they did that tutorial. So I felt like I got to experience this entire tutorial, and then I got to experience a regular mission so that I can actually have well-rounded thoughts on what this experience is. But then... Had to move on. Didn't play. There's like 20 more missions waiting for me there. I would love to finish that storyline before we go to Frosthaven. Uh, But for right now, I can definitely say the one I keep coming back to over and over and over again is actually Marvel Champions. And that is because, like Clockwork, every month, or maybe sometimes every other month, I think they're switching to a bi-monthly schedule, whereas up until now they've always been a new monthly content. They release new content. And I get it, and then I play it, and then I have a great time, and I... Once again, transported to one of my favorite things in the world, Marvel Comics of my childhood. So, I'm getting a lot of play with that. It also helps that um, I'm playing them solo. Because it's not just my time trying to get time to revisit a game over and over again, get it to the table in a given month. Uh, It's Jen's time, too. Because Jen's got a full-time job. She makes glass for a living. You know, gamerglass.art. And she does amazing work. And every time she's playing a game... Well, I mean, strictly speaking, the way we work it is, I am paying her. You know, out of the Patreon proceeds that I got, which I I don't hide that at all. You go to patreon.com slash Rado. You can see how much I make, how much I charge to do a run-through. And, uh, you know, the lion's share of that money is going to Jen to make up for the fact that she's not spending all that time making more glass that she could sell. Uh, So, uh, Marvel Champions... 
uh, plays great solo. So I've been doing that. that. That has been my lifestyle game. I do hope in the near future to maybe go back to Gloomhaven with Frosthaven because it seems like there's so many cool things in Frosthaven now. And I, ver- and I feel like that game has a lot for that I would need to play before I really dug into it. For a little while, a few months ago, Etherfields was. Because I, I went back and I played, like I think, two or three games with Jen. And then I played a lot of it solo. I played like another 10 games of it solo. Because I wanted to do a follow-up. Because my original Etherfields, I'd only played like one or two missions. So that was one. And, um, oh, you know what I'd like to do? Man, I would like to spend more time with Unsettled, which is a space, mysterious planet exploration co-op game. As I've got all the expansion content for it, and I've only played a tiny bit of it, oh, I would so love to explore all three chapters of every planet with that game. I could imagine that could gobble up a lot of time for the next few months. But right now, the closest thing I've got to what you're asking is Marvel Champions, which honestly ain't bad at all. There is a reason that game is so monstrously successful. Okay, let's see here. Then what have we got? Um, Alrighty, Ryan asks, or Ryan states, uh, Ryan is a, he, he, it's uh, Ryan Crichton of Nights Around a Table, who does how to play videos on my channel, and he does a great job. He says, I've been working on a Sea of Legends video, and it has me thinking about downtime. Sea of Legends removes the downtime from Merchant Marauders, effectively. Sea of Legends is a uh, kind of like Merchants and Marauders as a pirate game, you know, on speed because it, you know just it just goes goes goes. Um, so Ryan asks me because it's been on his mind. What are my favorite examples of downtime mitigation in games? Well, obviously simultaneous play. I love a good simultaneous play game. Uh, when I did my top ten gameplay mechanisms of all time years ago, one of my top rated ones was simultaneous um, action selection, like. Fresco, or Dungeon Pets, or Roll for the Galaxy, where, okay, I got shields up, Captain. I got my pieces, I got my workers, I got my dice, whatever it is, and now I'm just going to solve this little puzzle here. I'm going to optimize this, I'm going to do that, I'm going to have to make some tough choices, and you know what? You're doing the same thing behind your shields, and we're both just having a great time, because I, I know a lot of people say, well, you know what, what's the point of playing a game if you're not constantly interacting with each other? I always point to the fact that Sharing an activity together is interaction. It is valuable and meaningful as a socially bonding activity. Uh, I mean, years ago, I read a couple of, or a psychological study that said the most important thing you can do as a parent for your kids is just be in the room. Even if you are that literal stereotype of a dad who comes home from a hard day's work, takes off his shoes, puts his feet up, and just reads the evening paper all evening long, if you do that in the room, where your kids are playing with Legos, you are having a hugely positive impact on them. Even if you're not, oh, let me get down and roll around on the floor and play. That's great too. I mean, obviously that's even better. But um, like, I forget what it was. 80% of the job is just be there. Um, you know, provide that sense of, of social connection. And for me and Jen, just beginning to sit at the same table at the same time, even, I mean, we love multiplayer solitaire games. For some people, it's a dirty word. For us, it's manna from heaven because, oh, good, we don't, I don't have to worry about hurting you. I don't have to worry about trying to outmaneuver you. I just have to, heads down, solve this problem in front of me, have a great time doing it, and I know you're having a great time doing it too. I know you are because every once in a while I say, oh, oh, I'm not sure. Oh, could we re-roll those dice or whatever it is? And so we're having a wonderful shared experience. So for me, one of my favorite things, whenever uh, whenever I read rules that um, say, oh yeah, and by the way, um, everybody will secretly choose and then reveal at the same time what it is, I'm like, 
interested. I maybe, unless the rest of that game is garbage, I'm probably going to enjoy that game on some level because it, it, it destroys downtime for all intents and purposes. Now, that's not always the case because generally speaking, in all the games I just mentioned, I figure out my little puzzle significantly faster than Jen. Um, but still, it is much nicer rather than that same experience drug out over 10 turns where I take my turn and I'm done in 30 seconds and then Jen takes two minutes. And then I'm done in 15 seconds and then Jen takes five minutes. And then I'm done in five seconds and my turns keep getting shorter and her teams keep getting longer because that's just, I mean, she's a very analysis paralysis prone player. So anything we can do along those lines, that's probably my favorite thing. Real-time gaming, of course, is just the obvious answer to that. I'm curious, Ryan, um, what have you thought about? I mean, because those are really the two main things. What else could I think of as a, as a means? Well, obviously, there's the, the, the structure of the design that allows... That, um, that has a world state that is not going to change very much from turn to turn. Where it's more about my own personal world that changes. Agricola. Every, all the sizable changes happen on my farm, not on the main board. Small changes happen on the main board, so that when I am waiting for Jen, I can be planning my next three moves. So that, I think, is a huge thing, too. And again, for a lot of people, that's the scarlet letter of multiplayer solitaire. If the world doesn't change because of things players doing, why am I even playing this game? Well... Maybe so that um, there's not so much downtime because uh, you can plan out your next turn. So stuff like that, I very, very, very much value. It's an interesting question. Um, I'm wondering, do you have things that you have thought that aren't the... Because I feel like I just talked about the obvious stuff, the obvious choices a designer can make. All righty. Um, let's see here. And I think that looks like it, folks. Um, so... What we are going to do next is move on to another game-related question, and then Jen will be here. So hang on. We'll be right back. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Okay, folks, we are done with the... Almost done, I should say, with the gaming stuff. There was one question that came in uh, that was game-related that maybe Jen would be able to weigh in on. Now, I should say, of course, I have not streamed live yet. So there may have been some other ones that came in, and I just answered it as best I could on Jen's behalf. But Honey Pie, Joseph asks, Which competitive game would you say you're best at? Retrospectively, the two of us. In other words, which competitive games do we have the highest win ratios? Now, of course, you have no idea. I have honestly, no idea. <laughs> I don't either. I used to know. Uh, six or seven years ago, I could have told you because I used to keep track of every game we played on Board Game Geek. And I stopped doing it because people put way too much weight into it and were following it. And it was just like, oh, I'm not going to bother with this. In theory, I could have just started recording it some other way, but I just stopped because honestly, it was a bit depressing anyway. <laughs> As I recall, Gen 1 overall, something like 63% of the time. Not quite 65%. And I... Eh, uh, I, I, it's something I've learned to live with. So, um, Honey Pie, I mean, can you think of any one game that you're particularly good at? I mean, not that you like to play, but that you're good at. And if you can't think of a specific game, can you think of what you're good at in games? 
Well, yeah, that would be maximizing the efficiency of whatever my path is. Whatever okay. my engine is. That's very broad. Can you drill down a little bit? You just what? asked me that question. I answered that question. <laughs> yes, but I mean, could, could you be a bit more specific? Uh, maximizing paths in what ways? What kinds of paths? You just you, you found another way of saying I'm very good at games. No, I'm very good no, at no. playing the game. No, I meant I meant whatever engine I'm building. Mm-hmm. All right. I tend to take whatever steps or whatever path or add whatever options helps me become better at whatever engine I'm building. Well, why do you suppose that is? Because I like efficiency. Okay. And it's also in life, so, so you know. So would you say then that's what your best strength is in gaming, finding uh, the highest return on investment? There you go. Yes, you're I think always so. seeking out uh, because that's what you're always doing in gaming. You are always doing all the under the surface calculations of, well, okay, I don't know exactly what this translates to, but uh, a similar card, that one I could have bought that one for three, and this one seems to do the same thing, but it's one that I can earn at the beginning of a round. And since it doesn't have a cost, but it does this other particular thing, I will ascribe to it a three point five coins because it's a little <laughs> bit better. Now. 3.5 coins. How many turns does it take me to earn 3.5 coins? <laughs> um, you know, is it that? I mean, are you doing that? Yeah, I am doing that. Uh-huh. Yeah. Uh, just nonstop from start to finish? Um, yeah. Okay. And how can I get free actions and that sort of thing? Mm -hmm. How can I get more out of every turn? Do you have any kind of overarching approach to crunching those numbers or, you know, finding those efficiencies. Yeah, I think I, I generally tend to scan the board and see like, oh, well, is there more blue things than green things? Okay. And I would try and focus on blue things. Okay. Or oftentimes games will give us a uh, a goal to go to, whereas for this game we want to have blue twos instead mm -hmm. of red threes. Or whatever. Yeah, yeah, so just trying to figure out where the twos are as opposed to the threes are, or whatever, that kind of thing. So, okay. And yeah. one thing you never do is pay attention to what I'm doing. Very rarely. You're very, very rarely. No, and because yet, I'm busy. No, I'm very busy calculating everything else. I don't. I can't f factor you in. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Okay. Well, um, Joseph, I don't know if that helps. I can certainly say I tend to win games that are more tactically oriented as opposed to Jen. She is more long term. I have very little patience for long term strategy, and I do enjoy it. I like having a goal and aiming towards it, but I tend to be very instinctual and just reactive, and that feels right. You know what? And I, it's weird. I tend to look at things. I, I I really do not enjoy everything that Jen just described as being what she finds enjoyable about games. I, I hate running the numbers in my head. I hate, oh, let me open up three different balance sheets mentally so I can actually uh, you know, reconcile all these different inputs and outputs. But... Uh, I tend to look at almost point of view. Well, okay, if I were designing this game, I actually do look at it a lot, a lot of terms. You know, what is this game designed for me to do? What what do I think the designer wants me to do? Okay, I'm going to try and pursue that. That is a way I often tend to look at things because of my background as a professional designer uh, who did not come from a family of accountants. I mean, accounting <laughs> is in her blood. Her yeah. father was an accounting professor. Her mother, her stepmother was an economics teacher. Her sister became a very, very uh, High-level muckety-muck in Silicon Valley accounting. And Jen's kind of like the black sheep. Uh, she went and became an artist. But in her spare time for fun, she does accounting as a uh, gamer. That's so she still can't get away from it. 
Mm-hmm. Uh, so, yeah, as for particular games, I mean, one I know it's very strange. I am much, much better at Agricola than Jen. And I can say that because for a while we were playing it a lot. I mean, many, many, many years ago. And I would tend to win more than her. And I know why. I'm curious is what Jen's response to this would be. Jen tends to, or at least with Agricola anyway, she would tend to overextend herself. Yeah. You would never be able to say, right, okay, I'm just going to do, I'm just going to focus on these two things. Yep. I gotta get all six of these cards into play. Honey, there's no way you can get all six of those cards into play. But I want them all! So, I mean, that was always a real problem for her that, you know, she would always try to, you know, take the biggest bite of the apple she could. Yep. uh, And work it it all efficiently, too. Yeah. And then try and and, and, And and just... Occasionally just grind myself into a... Yep. Pulp. And it's interesting, too. I mean, this is definitely reflective of real life. Jen, if there's one real weakness I think she has, it is her inability to um, accurately estimate the amount of time it takes to do anything. Uh, She always assumes everything will be done quicker, faster, more efficiently, and easier than it actually turns out. That's fine. Uh, I mean, this is... I I, I used to jokingly say, honey, okay, well, how long is it going to take? And she would say, and I'd say, okay, it's literally going to take twice as long as that. Yep. And for years, I kept making that joke, and I think you have actually internalize that now. Yep. Uh, that you do just automatically double the length of anything. Yeah, I say... Instinctually, this should take this long. We're going to take... We're, we're going to go spend an hour doing this, but really it'll be two hours. Yeah, yeah. I mean... I, and I, I do think that translates into games as well. Particularly when you play against me, because I tend to be a very, very fast... I'm a definitely a bird in the hand, forget about the birds in the bush type player as well. Whereas Jen like, No! Give me time until there's 15 birds in the bush! So I can get them all <laughs> in one single action! It'll be great! <laughs> <laughs> so that kind of I mean I, I guess maybe that does kind of give me a, uh, a, a an advantage of games that favor that like Alexander Fister games uh, tend to I mean games that don't have a fixed ending that you know it's oh, up yeah. to players yes I, any game like that I tend to do better because you I actually pay run out attention. the clock and I'm still waiting I'm three moves away yeah. from my Grand finale. Yeah, that was a question that came up a while yeah. ago. Does Jen prefer fixed turn structures or variable, you know, player led? And she, you want to know, I just want to know exactly how long I have so I can figure that out because you don't know how long it's going to be and you don't pay attention to me. And I will warn you, honey, whatever you think you're doing, please understand you have two more turns. <laughs> yep, you if will. you even, even like pay a passing bit of information <laughs> over here, you would see <laughs> I have filled in everything but one single, and you still haven't done half of your stuff. Yep. And then she's like, oh, thank you. And then next turn, boom, 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 and it just all explodes and she just does. <laughs> and she wins. And I really shouldn't say that. I, I shoot myself in the foot every time I do that, but I tend to do that. So I, I can't really... I, I think it'd be hard for either of us really to uh, narrow it down because we're both really fairly evenly matched when it boils right down to it. I mean, it, I'm not happy about her winning 63% of the time, but it's not that much of a failure. Well, but I think I win more often too because you are distracted by me asking you questions. So if I didn't do that and you were able to just think about your own game, maybe you'd win 50% of the time. Yeah, maybe, maybe. Uh, another thing we are often concerned about is whether Jen made some kind of cheat. Because, I mean, obviously, you watch my videos, you know, I make goofs all the time. I think we all make goofs when we're playing these games, and Jen is certainly no exception to that. Yeah. And so there have been plenty of times like, honey, you can't do that. Well, I've been doing it the whole game. It's like, I was very clear, you, you, know, you cannot mix green and purple pieces. That's the one thing you can't do. Oh, Whoopsie! <laughs> and so we often wonder how many things like that do we miss. Yeah. Um, but it's it's fine. Uh, but I guess that's kind of I figured, I I knew we wouldn't be able to answer specifics, but I was curious to hear what Jen said, <coughs> and I think that kind of gives like a broad level. Can you add anything to that? 
before no. we move on to the personal and stuff. I think that it was quite quite good, actually. Okay, then, folks, that's it. Gaming time over. Personal time is upon us. So if you would like to beat feet, now is the time to get out. And I'll say thanks for listening or watching. Talk to you there so long. Goodbye. Send more questions to questionsaraw.com. But otherwise, hang on, everybody. We'll be right back. Okie doke, folks. Personal questions. Uh, some stuff for Jen. Probably mostly for me because it's a lot of pop culture stuff. But by all means, more questions. Questionsaraw.com. Especially ones that Jen can answer. Huh, like, or like, not. A, like accounting. No, I don't want to answer <laughs> accounting questions. Yep. All right. Not qualified for that. Uh, yeah. That, yeah. Uh, she's the... Uh, what's the line? It's uh, the doctor. I I don't play a doctor. I play a doctor. On t- oh, yeah. Whatever. Regardless. Um, okay. Andrew asks... Or says, this common question is born of an argument I had with Ruel on the R&R show. Uh, Andrew believes that Star Wars' strength is telling simple stories in a galaxy far, far away. But why Andrew likes the prequels, Rogue One, uh, the uh, OG trilogy, and Can't Fault Mandalorian. It's, it's why Andrew likes the prequels, Rogue One, the uh, original trilogy, and Can't Fault Mandalorian and, uh, predict- uh, for being predictable. It drives Andrew crazy to hear people defending new Star Wars and not just admitting it's nostalgia machine selling simple stories in a cool setting. Am I off base in your opinion? Uh, George Lucas never minced words. He always said, yeah, this is this is for kids. I am making stories for kids. And um, there is a whole industry now born out of fulfilling the adult needs of who those who were once kids and had all their dopamine centers triggered in their brains. Um, I, I completely agree. Yeah, you know, they are very simple, black and white, moralistic stories. Access not true. Certainly the original trilogy is very cut and dried, very simple, straightforward, classic hero's journey, just, you know, cribbing a bunch of stuff from different places. And there's nothing wrong with that. That's what he set out to do. Uh, and he and a group of very talented people did it. I would argue that the prequels do add a lot more depth, and it's one of the reasons I prefer the prequels to the original trilogy. As he starts delving into the realm of politics and um, you know, you know, greater social issues that drive humanity, as opposed to what does it mean to be good and bad, which is really about as far as Star the original trilogy takes it. And you're right. I mean, Mandalorian. And uh, Boba Fett don't really... It's weird. Um, Boba Fett did have ambitions to do more and just fails miserably. Mandalorian does not have any ambitions other than to be a Western in space. And it's fine at that. And um, you know what? That kind of stuff I found great when I was a kid because it was made for me. As an adult, I put Mandalorian up against... Better Call Saul or Breaking Bad. And I find it wanting because I want something that is a little bit deeper, that has more nuance, that has shades of gray, as opposed to very simple black and white morality tales for kids. And it's one of the reasons that Mandalorian, it's fine, it's crafted brilliantly. And if I had kids, I'd probably enjoy the heck out of watching it with them. But I don't. So, uh, yeah, but I don't think you're off base at all. Uh, although I agree, I don't think you're giving the prequels enough credit, quite frankly. But I don't think you have anything to say about Star Wars at all, do you, Honey Pie? Nope. Then we will move on to Daniel, who first asks, What do we think of the quote in Daniel's emails? The quote, honey, is, The weak dress in hatred to hide their fear. It's a quote from a song, apparently, and he puts it in you know his standard quote of all of the emails. Do you have any thoughts about that quote, Honey Pie? Oh. The weak dress in hatred 
to hide their fear. Well, I think that's probably he's referring to, uh, let's say, white people who are afraid of being um, made minorities at this point, and they're addressing... Well, I don't think it has to be about anybody. It's just a broad statement that that hatred is born of fear. If 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 there is somebody who has hate in their heart for something, it's probably because on some deep down level they're they're afraid of it. They're afraid of the threat it poses to them. And you're right. One of them could be you know the white replacement theory mm-hmm. that oh those dirty people from across the border <laughs> who are rapists and some of them are good people. Mm-hmm. Um, easy to vilify them because they represent um, something that you don't understand. And or actually, if you walk them out on their shoes, if you get to know them, you're like oh. I'm not afraid of you anymore because I don't fear you because I I don't I, I don't hate you because I don't fear you. I mean, Yoda said it best. Um, uh, was it uh, fear leads to anger? Anger leads to hate. Hate leads to suffering. Um, and you know, I mean, that's an example, by the way, of George Lucas having a little bit more to say than just oh, bad guys should wear black outfits and good guys should always be good. Uh, you know that you know kind of delving into more nuance. And I my thought to the quote is I've seen it a million times, of course, because you uh, write in stuff all the time. Is I agree with it largely, but I'm really not a fan of starting with the weak. Um, I don't think it's necessarily weakness to have that happen. I think it's human. I think on some level we are all capable of this. We all have to remember that there for the grace of God go I. And you know, if I had grown up in similar circumstances, I might have the exact same outlook. So I don't think it's fair to say weak. It I mean it is it is implicitly human and well, I guess I want to flip it. To be strong is to acknowledge that in yourself and overcome it. So that's really my number one concern. But yes, um, you know, hatred is born of fear. I, I, I largely agree that that is a true statement for humanity. Jen, this whole time has been staring off with a very pensive look like this. I don't know what this means. Do you well, have I'm just thinking say? about it. Is it weakness or is it experience? Inexperience? Is it is it people who are yeah never get out of their own little comfort mm-hmm. zones? Yeah, uh, there's enough. I mean, I don't uh, think that that's necessarily weakness either. I think that's just a lack of experience. Yeah. Uh, uh, what's it? Hanlon's razor. Never ascribe to malice that which can be explained by ignorance, I think is probably mm. the single most important thing to bear in mind when you are interacting with somebody who disagrees with you. Just because they disagree with you doesn't mean they're bad. It just means their life experiences have led them to a situation where this just makes the mo- their, their perspective makes the most sense to them. And if it had been me, I might have the exact same end result. I might have come to the same result. I am the result of a lifetime of experiences that have led me to a particular wordville. Other people have different ones. Um, and yeah, I, I, I don't mean to let everybody off the hook. There can be demonstrably, objectively bad, harmful things. And ultimately, that's what it comes down to. But um, yeah, I, I tend to think most people, even people I vehemently disagree with, aren't necessarily evil. They're just in a situation that has made them think that this is the best thing they can do because they're the hero of their own story. Um, and so to disparage them or dismiss them is just, oh, you're weak. I don't think that helps anything. I think that is immediately throwing up a wall between you and them, disparaging them for something that you might be in the same situation. And from their perspective, they think you know you're equally ignorant or, or, or because you don't share their life or and their world experiences. So it's all very, very tricky. And the best thing we can do is just try 
to, well, first of all, not call each other weak. Yeah. Um, Don't start off with you know, an immediate And if somebody insult. says they hate something, try to dig past that because there's a reason. And that's really the important thing to try to address if you can. I agree. Yeah. Okay. Um, and then Daniel has a couple of political questions. Uh, first of all, do I follow... What? What? You're okay. just really loud. I'm really loud. Okay. <laughs> do I follow breaking points with Crystal and Sager and what are my thoughts on their reporting? Um... When they were still on the hill, I watched them, and I, I, I like them by and large. I, 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 th- I think it's a good show. I, I think it's good to have, uh, you know, that, you know, I mean, the, the whole point is, oh, I'm a progressive, I'm a conservative, but we get along with each other. Let's try to find the middle ground. I think that's a good and worthy thing to do. Uh, I don't always agree with either of their perspectives, quite frankly. And um, I think they often have, both of them, very simplistic, one-sided perspectives on things and have a hard time looking at the broader view. That's my own personal opinion. And what do you know? The truth probably exists somewhere in the middle of the two of them. But I I agree. I I don't agree because I don't know what you think about it, Daniel. But I I do like it in theory. Um, I think that... From my experience, and mostly when it's on the view, maybe when they were on the hill and they had their show there. I know they went off and did their own thing. Maybe things have changed, but I suspect it has, and I suspect they are both probably still often fairly one-dimensional in their approach to things. But it's kind of their shtick, because they are supposed to represent two sides of a coin. Well, and at least they're talking. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yep. And yeah, at least they are demonstrating ideal behavior between the the two sides of the American schism. What are your thoughts on Musk acquiring Twitter. And do I still think it's a private platform? They can do as they please. Uh, I still kind of think that. I think it's unfortunate. Uh, of course, I, I don't mean to dismiss it. I'm sure a lot of people view it as a very valuable tool to be able to express themselves to a world that um, you know and, and empowers them. And hey, if that's true, that's great. That's fine. I've got no problem with that. But the fundamental problem with Twitter, the way it gamifies... Um, uh, what do you call it? The, the, the way that it gamifies discourse. That, okay, I need to win. How do I win? By having the most retweets and the most uh, likes. How do I get those? Probably by saying something really ridiculous and outrageous. Okay, and we are all primed to try as best we can to win at games. Um, and so it, it just brings out the worst. I mean, If Musk did take over, my fervent hope would be the first thing he would do is kill retweeting and kill likes. Just kill them. And get it back to what it was originally intended to be. Those are both huge mistakes that completely disincentivize people from actually trying to have real conversations and instead incentivizes shouting matches. Twitter sucks uh, in its current form. And it, it we should all ignore it. We should all just walk away from it. Because there are very few of us on it in the first place. All right. Anyway. Uh, ready to move on? Yes. Okay. Joseph uh, wonders... During the last R&R, I mentioned that The Last Jedi is the best Star Wars film. Could I briefly explain why? Probably not. Have you you not listened to my show? You can't briefly do anything. I can't briefly... (laughs) No. Okay, I will try to very briefly... Well, you know what? It's kind of what I was talking about before. Last Jedi, I would say, is by far the most mature... And I don't mean in terms of graphic violence or anything like that. But it is the um, most deep and rich... 
storytelling of any Star Wars. It is the one that is furthest away from George Lucas' original ideals of, look, I'm just making morality plays for kids. And the thing is, when George went and did the prequels, a lot of people did not like the prequels for a lot of reasons, but one of them is because, whoa, why are you talking about trade routes? What is all this? This isn't Star Wars. And like, yeah, he's doing something new and different. He is older now. He's not a guy in his 20s. He's a guy who has things to say about the world. Mm. And he was using the prequels as his platform. And honestly, Last Jedi is the only... Um, well, I guess you could say Rogue One to a certain extent. Maybe even Han Solo a little bit, but not so much. Uh, but, I mean, these are the ones that are actually trying to use... Star Wars to actually have deep and insightful, meaningful insight into the human condition. When I compare Mandalorian to Better Call Saul, and I find Mandalorian woefully inadequate, I do not find that for um, A Last Jedi. Because it has things to say about the military-industrial complex. It has things to say uh, about the complexity in Shades of Grey. I mean, there's literally a character named DJ, which is short for Don't Join, trying to argue about uh, you know how much of our own personal self-worth should be tied into just what we can see, you know, just ourselves versus something that is bigger and greater. Um, you know, every character has interesting character arcs, including Luke Skywalker. Um, you know, you know, trying to understand his own role within mythic storytelling. I, you know, there's so many cool, really deep dive things um, that I just really love. I mean, I've watched that movie a half a dozen times now, and I will still see beautiful, nuanced, interesting things every time because it is so rich and meaningful. And it is not just a simple, you know, for kids, black and white Western, which is what Mandalorian is. And um, and then on top of that, all that aside, it is by far the most technically accomplished Star Wars has ever been. Star Wars has never been more visually beautiful, more wonderfully cinematographed. Uh, everything about it is stunning to look at. It is an overwhelming, um, you know, it is sensory overload in the best way. Uh, it is so beautifully, artfully crafted, in addition to having so much to say. And that's why I hold it on such a high pedestal compared to everything else. Oh, and it's the only thing that actually recognized what George was trying to do in the prequels and builds on it. Because everybody always worries about, oh, the character arc. Uh, Last Jedi recognizes that George was doing a universe arc, watching the universe itself grow in its relationship with power and the Force and all that. And Last Jedi carries on those, whereas everything else ignores it. So, yeah, I think I failed at being brief. But for me, that was kind of brief. Yeah, that's good. All righty. And you have nothing to say about that, I'm sure, honey. Correct. All righty, then we'll move on to Kevin, who uh, has who notes that we mentioned we have a very nice Bluetooth speaker that we use to keep on the table while we play. What type of speaker is it? That is a good question. I will tell you it's triangular. Do you want me to go get it? Sure. Why don't you go grab it? I, I was just going to look it up on Amazon so I could get the uh, name because we bought it on Amazon. We actually ended up buying two. As we bought the first one, I lent it to my mom and she loved it so much that we had to buy another one for ourselves. It's not here anymore. Where is it? Oh, you know, we took it. Um, yeah, we took it, we took it on the trip and we were using it when we were, I, I don't know. I have no idea. It's, it's in a backpack somewhere because I have yet to unpack. Okay. So we can't find it, but I think it's, I think try or just speaker. Let me see. Um, yes, it is the, all right, there it is. Let me put that on screen for people who are watching. It is the Oontz, O-O-N-T-Z. Angle 3 Bluetooth <laughs> speaker. It costs 25 bucks. has a uh, 10-watt output, 100-foot wireless Bluetooth range. Yeah, 
it's not going to blow the doors off a proper stereo system, but, you know, like I said, Jay and I, we were on the road recently, and we were like, oh, well, hey, let's watch uh, shows that, you know, on our crappy little, uh, we, we watched the final episode of Severance while we were on the road. Oh, yeah. And it was on my little 13-inch laptop screen, but with this speaker, it sounded it, it sounded like we were having a big room experience. I am very, very impressed by this thing, uh, although apparently we've lost it. It, it. Honey, isn't it just on the game table? All right, it's it's somewhere in this house, and uh, you'll have to dig it up. Where would it be? Like you said, it's probably in the backpack somewhere. No, 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 because I, we've used it since we've been back. Have we? Yeah. I don't know. Anyway, doesn't matter. I highly recommend um, Kevin the Unz Angle Three Bluetooth speaker, which you can buy for twenty five bucks on Amazon. As you can see, I've already purchased it twice. Um, and I really should get an Amazon, what do you call it? You know, the affiliate. A- affiliate thing. So you could actually follow my link and I could get a sweet, sweet two cents when you bought one yourself. But uh, <laughs> we will ignore that. Do you recommend it? Uh, yeah, I highly recommend it. I'm super happy with it. And a side question. I mentioned, I've mentioned in the past that Jen and I are frugal. Are there any stories where being frugal ended up costing us more? Are there any purchases we wish we could take back and just buy better quality to begin with? Hmm. Well, thank goodness to Amazon, you can buy stuff, and if you don't like it, you give it back. Yep. So I would say a lot of our frugality issues have been taken care of. That's a good of that. point, yes. Uh... Um, but I would say, actually, that the things that I would... I would change about us our frugality. Yeah, would be that um, there have been times when we've been somewhere, like on a trip or something. Yeah, and we haven't done something because it was oh my god, it's a hundred bucks to do that or mm-hmm. whatever. And as I get older, I realize it's never going to get cheaper <laughs> to do that. A, you have it's to never going to get more efficient. Well, and you're ne- first of all, you have to get back there to do it. Yep. Right. Mm-hmm. But the second thing is, it's it was a hundred bucks this year. It's going to be. Yeah, $1,000 in 10 years. Wow. Or let's say five. That's a really Whatever. interesting way to put it. I mean, it will never be cheaper than it is right now. Yep. That's a really good way to look at it. And so that, wow. is, the, that is the thing. is where, Wherever you are, whatever you have an opportunity to do, do it then if it's interesting to you because it's... Ne- you, It'll only be more expensive if you try to do it later. Yep. That, I mean, obviously there's exceptions to that. There, there can be savings, but I mean... Maybe space travel. Yeah, but, that might get, get cheaper in the future, yeah. but... But, but nonetheless, but as I mean, a if, general guiding if, principle, like if you're going to do a hot air balloon ride, yeah, those are really expensive. But you know what? Never going to be cheaper. Yep, yep. So yeah, stuff like that. I think is, and you know, the more I hear too about what actually makes people happy is experiences rather than stuff. Mm-hmm. So if you're going to spend some money on an experience, it's going to be memorable and it's going to be really cool and whatever. I mean, maybe it'll be horrible and that'll be its own story <laughs> in itself. Yep. But um, you know, that's probably a really good good thing to not be frugal on. Okay. I like it. Alrighty. Uh, Melanie asks, or says, we have more than one dog. Yes. Is one of your dogs the alpha? <laughs> or are they both laid back and look to you and Jen as the alphas? Oh. What are our dog's temperaments like? Oh, that's a nice question. Well, A, I am the alpha. Mm-hmm. Um, you are the emergency backup alpha. <laughs> <laughs> um, and then Daisy is definitely far more... Uh, dominant than Gert. Gert is just like, well, please like me. It'll be okay. Um, but Daisy, because she was a street dog and has, has a bit of a sad past, is also can be really submissive in in, in a sad way. Mm-hmm. That, you know, like even we've had her for six years now and she'll still cower and yeah. we've never hit her. Yeah. You know, 
So yeah, I mean, she must have had a really bad time because when we first got her and we were taking her for a walk, and oh, let's let's throw a stick and see if she likes chasing oh, sticks. Oh yeah, and you just pick up a stick, and I mean, she will just immediately she flattens. Yeah, because apparently people beat her with a stick, and so that's what a stick means to her. So we don't pick up sticks around her anymore. Nope. Um, yeah, but that aside, between the two of them, um, even though Gert is probably what. 30, 40% bigger, um, <laughs> could easily bowl her over. A Gert is completely submissive to Daisy. But Daisy's not really... She's not an aggressive dog. No, 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 no. It's just that if, if there's, like, you know, they're eating in a, uh, a, licking out a soup bowl or something, Daisy will stick her nose in it and take over. Yeah, and Gert will say, oh, I guess that's not for me then, yep, and just I've walk had... away. Yep. Even though I could easily rickroll you and take it all for myself because I'm bigger and stronger, but she doesn't know it. Yeah. All right. Okay. Uh, let's see. Uh, anything else about the dog temperaments that you'd mm. like to... Daisy loves everybody. Mm-hmm. I think she just has that wonderful personality. She'll go up and say hi to everybody. Whereas Gert's more shy. Yeah, very. Yeah. Um, I don't think Gert was properly socialized as a puppy. So she's just... Yeah. Kind of keeps her distance. As we understand it, Gert was actually bought to be a show dog. To be a competitor, Crufts. And apparently she spent most of her puppyhood just in a crate for hours... Days at a time, kind yeah. of thing. I mean, yeah. And uh, and so yeah, and she's just incredibly shy, incredibly recalcitrant. I mean, just uh, you know, afraid of everything, really. But happy. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, she's happy enough. She's yep. Just she's just really cautious and wary about everything. Yep. Yep. Okay. Whereas Daisy just runs over to people. yeah to anything. Yep. Yeah. Uh, yeah. Has no concept of <laughs> danger Daisy other than probably sticks. Likes. Everybody else better than us. Because she's like, ah, hey, <laughs> would you like me? I will come home with you. Yep, yeah. Yep. These people make me like sit. Yes. Occasionally. It's it's terrible. <laughs> okay. Uh, Lance asks, uh, first of all, do we have any thoughts on the new Doctor Strange movie and the uh, Moon Knight series? Spoiler free. Do you have any thoughts about Moon Knight and Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness, honey pie? Um... And if you could look towards the microphone, that would be great. Instead of literally turning your back to the microphone, which is what she is doing <laughs> off camera right Daisy now. I'm making Daisy comfortable. Yes, that is very important. Um, right. So, a Moon Knight just, like, totally discombobulated me the first episode or two. Mm-hmm. I don't want to say anything more. Well, it's supposed to. Yeah. Well, it did. Yes. Um, Mission accomplished. Tick. Um, but I thought that was interesting, and I liked that it was um, set in an ancient time. Mm-hmm. Thought that was pretty cool. I thought the special effects were really nice. And as to the story, I think it's interesting, especially as a treatise on mental health. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, I thought it was pretty good. Okay. And how about Doctor Strange in the Multiverse of Madness? I have to get my brain into that now. I, I remember it. Don't worry. Yeah. Um, no spoilers. Yeah. Okay, I just like Doctor Strange. Okay. I just think he's a great character, and I enjoy the actor as well. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, I thought it, I thought it was a good movie. I I wasn't one of the ones that I was like, why did we go to a theater for this? <laughs> <laughs> okay. So I think that was really so good. it was theater worthy. You're saying theater worthy. Well, that's that's a strong statement. Um, I think uh, I, I certainly agree with Jen. I, I enjoyed both of them quite a bit. 
Uh, my only real complaint of I, I thought Moon Knight could have been one of the best Disney Plus shows. Uh, you know, I've really uh, and and you know a lot of people complained about oh the second and third episode were kind of you know starting to drag a little bit, but I didn't see that at all. Especially the third episode um, where they really started to play with their own format and their own formula and turned it on its head. I thought that was some really cool, fun stuff. Some of my favorite moments uh, in the show actually happened in the third episode, and uh, you know, and then the fifth episode, of course, was just mind-blowing, you know, I mean, you know, it was was right up there with the best of WandaVision. My only complaint is, I wish they'd been seven episodes. Uh, I think they wrapped things up a little bit too quick, you know, the end was a bit rushed, Um, and it was fine, it was, you know, appropriately, you know, over-the-top and exciting and and well-produced and whatnot, but, um, you know, it's just, the, uh, you know, everything was resolved adequately, but it doesn't feel like it at all. Um, and I, you know, you have to assume it's going to be getting a season two like Loki does. But I mean, you know, if, if Loki didn't get a season two, I'm like, well, okay, I, I still feel satisfied. I, I somehow felt a little unsatisfied. I, I wanted another hour with these characters to kind of wrap things up and tie them up. I mean, it felt like the third act isn't quite over yet. Yeah. Actually, I just had, I just thought of a question. So will you pause so I can ask you my question? All right. Why? Because it might be spoilery? Yeah. Oh, it's right. definitely spoilery. Oh, then we're, watch out, folks. Cover your ears. Well, here's the freaky thing, folks. We probably just had a 15-minute discussion about the nature of souls and untethered conscience (laughs) in the Marvel Universe. (laughs) And we have never had a conversation about that, about anything. Star Trek, Star Wars, nothing. So i got to say both these movies, the movie and TV show, are the greatest things of all time. Because they actually got Jen to think about these weird fictional universes. And that's true. I remember you did say that both of them had actually stuck with you. Because you, I mean, like... A week after we finished Noon Night, you asked me some question about something. Yeah. Yeah, what about this? So you were still thinking about it. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'm not saying I don't think about these things in general. Mm-hmm. I mean, my, my mom was a bit alternative. So oh, sure, sure. I've had some time to think about her her take on the matter. Yeah. Um, but yeah, that we would talk about it in this particular theme is very interesting and makes the Marvel Universe more pertinent to me. Oh, well, there you go. So um, there you go. I'm sorry, folks. We had to avoid spoilers. Uh, you didn't get to hear all that. But uh, so... Um, yeah, and, and, and it's interesting, those two things, because we were actually drawing parallels. Well, what do these two, what does Marvel's uh, Multiverse of Madness and Moon Knight both say about the nature of human consciousness? Mm-hmm. Because they both kind of approach from different things, and we were trying to reconcile the two into one thing that would be a consistent philosophy that the Marvel Universe espouses. And I think we came to a conclusion, and we think we've got it nailed now. Yep. So I think maybe you should be a consultant to the Marvel Universe. There people. you go. Clearly, that's what I should do. Uh, okay, that would and, be your ideal job. You would love. Oh that. gosh, yes, yes. Oh yeah, yeah. I love it. Um, I mean, well, I, I, I kind of. That was the greatest thing. Remember, you remember, I was working with Marvel. I spent mm. a lot. I spent weeks in New York at Marvel Studios working on Secret Wars before it all got canceled. Um, so Doctor Strange. You just said, your response is, well, I like it because I like Stephen Strange. I do. Do you have any more thoughts about now that we just had this very big conversation? Because in, uh, without spoilers, there's a very quick throwaway line at one point, uh, early in the movie, where somebody says, oh, this means this. And I'm sure Jen probably didn't even, you know, because you're like, what's going on? And you're like, and I was like, whoa, you just said something that changes the very nature of existence with that one statement. And so I mentioned it to Jen, and, you know, and so that is like, well, how does that coincide how does that conflict or is it consistent with what we saw in moon Knight? Mm-hmm. um so does that make you feel any different about either of these properties no i just think it's cool and actually i like that they're bringing these concepts to maybe, mass market yeah and just uh, people's consciousness yep 
Um, I thought Doctor Strange was great. I love... The thing that surprised me most is that it is a real sequel to the first Doctor Strange movie. I didn't think that was going to be the case at all. I thought it was going to be just kind of a weird hodgepodge, multi-nexus... I, we just got to throw a bunch of stuff in here because we're trying to lay the groundwork for what's coming next in the Marvel Universe. And, oh, and we're, we're really a sequel to this and that and the other thing. But no, it's so much of what happens in that movie is a direct continuation of the character growth that Strange goes through from the original movie. And, I mean, the interesting thing is, I didn't expect this at all, you don't have to have seen the Spider-Man No Way Home, which, of course, Doctor Strange was a major supporting character in, at all. To I mean, you need to have seen the first movie. And, strictly speaking, you should probably see WandaVision. But you could get by without even seeing WandaVision. Mm. But, but if you see WandaVision, then the show equally becomes, it should have been called Doctor Strange and Wanda Maximoff. Or, and the Scarlet Witch in the uh, Multiverse of Madness because it really is both of their movies. And um, I know some people are disappointed with uh, how Wanda was handled as a character taking into account where she was at the end of WandaVision. But to me, it all worked. I thought it made perfect sense uh, as, as a continuation that, hey, you know what? People aren't static. You know, I know we want our TV and movie characters to say, oh, when they reach the end of their arc, they've reached their realization, and boom, they're that new person now, and they're never going to change again. People do change. People continue to change and evolve, and sometimes in not good ways. That's kind of why I love what was done with Luke Skywalker in The Last Jedi as well. That he didn't just stay a perfect, shining paragon of Jedi virtue. That there was more to his story that was yet to be told. and it, But it built and was the natural evolution of where it came before. And I felt the same thing was true for WandaVision. Or at least they established enough in WandaVision and what was done in Multiverse of Madness that it all worked considering what it was they were trying to do. Which is basically, I don't think this is a secret, basically make the Marvel Cinematic Universe's first horror movie. Because it is. It's a horror movie. Uh, very, very light PG-13. It's from the director of Evil Dead, of course. So, uh, did you have any problems with the fact of, you know, I mean, it is certainly the most graphic movie. Oh, yes. There's yeah. plenty of fighting. Mm-hmm. Well, and, and killing. And, and um, you know, fairly, uh, sometimes very graphic uh, deaths and whatnot. Did you have a problem with that? Are you okay? Oh, I think I just probably didn't really watch that. <laughs> I just kind of look around. You just kind of focused and, beyond the screen. Yeah, just kind of wait for that part to be over. <laughs> okay. All right, well, there you go, Lance. There's some, there's some observations. Also, um, after hearing me talk about Star Trek on the R&R show, uh, Lance wanted to know if I'd be willing to list my favorite Trek shows from least favorite to most favorite. That's something we can do. Are you ready for that, honey pie? Jen's just like, oh. She rolled her eyes. Do I, I have to do this? I didn't roll my eyes. All right, all right. Let's see. Uh, is there an online notebook I can use? Right, notepad. I just want to be able to type. There we go. That's cool. I'm going to bring this back on screen. So, what have we got here? Um, so, there, of course, there's Star Trek TOS. There's uh, Next Gen. There's DS9. There's uh, Voyager. There's Enterprise. I'm, folks, for you're listening, I'm just typing all down, and then we're going to figure out, we're going to put these in order. There's Enterprise. Then there's Disco. There's Picard. There, or Picrad. Picard, there's Lower Decks, and there's now BNW, Brave New Worlds. Or no, Strange New Worlds. Uh, Strange New Worlds. All right, and then see, and then there's also, I'm going to leave the 70s cartoon out of this. I could rank it, but Jen's never seen a single episode of it, so I'm sure she can't say anything. Am I forgetting anything? I don't think so. Star Trek, then Next Gen, Voyager. What's Disco? Uh, It's Discovery, Star Trek Discovery. 
Oh. Remember when they're out jogging, they always wear the shirts that say disco when they're jogging. <laughs> because it's, they can't be bothered to put in the rest of the word discovery. <laughs> All right, I'll put in disco- discovery. All right. Uh, I don't think I'm forgetting anything. I'd be really embarrassed if I am. So, for me, uh, Lower Decks, number one. <sighs> Strange New World, number two. Even though we've only seen two episodes so far, but oh my god, it's so good. Uh, for me, it'll always be Next Gen is number three. Uh, Enterprise, number four. You just said Next Gen is... Oh, I'm sorry. I, I meant uh, original series. I meant original series. Next Gen, number four. Uh, Interpri- or Enterprise, number four. DF Size, nine. Number five. This is me, and then we'll see what Jen thinks. Um. Oh, that's tough. Discovery and Voyager. I think the first two seasons of Discovery were great. The third season was okay, and the fourth season was kind of a letdown. Whereas Voyager was just like kind of a consistent. Oh, we've got good and bad the whole way through. <laughs> you know what? Uh, Seven of Nine was such a great character, and our interactions with Janeway were so good. I'm going to put Voyager over Discovery, even though I think individually I probably like Discovery more. And then Next Gen, and at the bottom of the list, Picard, because the first season of Picard was okay, had some good stuff, had kind of a, a really horrible, unsatisfying ending. Yeah. And then I don't know what did you think of the second season? I thought the second season was like, geez, Louise, I was. It is the worst Star Trek has ever been, as far as I'm concerned. I was just watching the clock. Until the very final episode, it did redeem itself somewhat. Um, you know, the closure between certain characters, and you know, some surprises along the way I thought were very, very satisfying. But the, as a whole, the entire second season of Picard was such a weak-sauce retread of Star Trek IV Voyage Home as to not even be worth watching for the most part. And like I said, they redeemed themselves a tiny bit, but not. it was not worth the time we put into it. I was super disappointed by it, and I call it the worst. So anyway, that's it for me, Honey Pie. How about you? Okay, I'm going to go... I'm just going to take all these, and we're going to make another list using this. Okay, so what's your favorite Star Trek? Um, I'm actually going to say that my favorite Star Trek is Next Gen. Next Generation? Okay, all right, cool. I am. You are not alone there. Yeah, and I think that's because that's kind of really when I started getting into yes. it. Yes, I think, and, and that's why you're not alone there. So many people, Next Gen is the uh, the stepping on point. Yeah. For me, Next Gen was always like, what is this weird stuff? This is not Star Trek. This is something else that is called Star Trek. And I came to appreciate, and I came to enjoy it, and I like all the characters, and I think it has a lot of really amazing, important stories to tell and all that. Yeah, and but- it's also... Much less action, pow, pow, powy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So. I mean, and the original Star Trek was very action, pow, pow, powy, and I always missed it. I, I always. Uh, anyway, so. Well, as we just discussed in the movie we were discussing, yes. I kind of just am waiting for the pow, pow, powy to get, <laughs> to over, get over. Yeah, yeah. So I prefer. Next gen is nothing but talky, talky, talk. <laughs> I like talk, right. talk, talky. So what's next? Um, I am gonna go with. Um, well, of course, Enterprise because of the Enterprise beagle. is your number two. Beagle, right? Because there's a beagle on it. Is that the only reason Enterprise gets number two? <laughs> well, and I do love um, Scott Bakula. Yep, Scott Bakula. All right. Um, and then but what I, about the show as a whole? The show itself. I actually don't really remember that much, but I thought we've it was, watched. I mean, we watched it not too long, just a few years ago. Well, I, I mean, okay, it's four seasons long. Yeah, the first it? and the second season were pretty straightforward. Hey, oh, here's a new problem we have every week. Yeah. We're getting to know the characters, and all that. The third season starts with, oh, the Zindi have are, have attacked Earth. I think Florida was destroyed or something like that and so the entire season was one long episode of the enterprise making a desperate um you know against all odds journey into the depth of whatever quadrant it was to find out where the zindi came from and stop them from destroying the earth and so the entire third season got very very dark it still had episodes of the week and whatnot but it had a lot of stuff about um 
Archer having to make bigger and bigger compromises of, I have to save Earth. I mean, this is my number one thing. Okay, well, we have to leave you to die or whatever. And, and it had a lot of that kind of stuff. And, you know, and so it was like a big departure for Star Trek. It was more kind of akin to Deep Space Nine in that regard. And then the fourth season, where after they'd resolved that, it was, uh, honestly, I maybe the best season of any Star Trek show ever because they actually brought on a lot of really great Star Trek author or no- novel authors, and they were doing really deep dives into the ba- what Enterprise always should have been. Hey, let's really deep dive into the history of Vulcan and deep dive into the history of the Eugenics Wars and 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 and, and the Andorians, and there were all these really cool and and instead of doing like one storyline over the entire, they were doing like oh it just is a little two episode thingy, a three episode thingy, and that was when it was at its absolute best. And of course, it was just there. And then they were always having to get naked and wipe goo on each other to <laughs> decontaminate to have some sexy time. Yeah. There was lots of that too. There was that as well. <laughs> right. Yeah. Okay. Well, I just remember um, it was after watching Deep Space Nine and um, discovering, or not discovery, but Voyager, and, and it just felt like it was a, a nice return to, I guess, some of the Star Trek that okay. I liked. Right. So, anyway, so I'm yeah. going to go ahead and Number leave two. it there. Yep. Um, I'm going to go with, I think actually Voyager, because I like having a female captain, yeah, and I cool, thought cool. there was a lot of interesting stuff going on there, yep. being out of normal. Um, yeah, I don't think Voyager gets a, enough. A, gets enough props. Okay. Um, I'm going to go with, actually, I've been really enjoying Strange New Worlds, yep. so that's coming Number, next. Even though, again, it's kind of unfair. We've only seen two episodes so far, but man, yeah. they've been so good. Yeah, and especially the first episode. Yeah. Was great. I agree. So, um... um I am gonna. If you need to just make some tie, that's fine. If you, if you can't like, oh, I, I can't yeah. really judge this versus this. Yeah, I enjoyed a lot of Picard actually. I okay. thought that was fun. All right, you're putting um, Picard next. Yeah, let's do Picard. Next. Wow, really? Although, I mean, some of it was just a lot of this whole second his, season about just... his mental psyche problems and stuff. That was a bit boring. All right, but you're still putting it next, okay? <sighs> Four more. No, 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 I'm not. All right. Okay, so let's go with... Do I need to pause? No, I think Deep Space Nine is next. Deep Space Nine is next. All right. Yep. And then... I don't know. you got to put, the, I think, original series. Really? I mean, I I wouldn't be surprised if you never even watched a single episode of the original series. No, I did. No. I don't know. Yes. Okay. Um... So his lower decks is still at the bottom, I, even though you finally watched both seasons I with did, me. I did, yeah. I just it's just not my kind of stuff. Okay. So I guess I liked a lot of Discovery. It's just there's been a lot that I didn't like about it too. So let's mm-hmm. put that. Uh, yep. Yep. Okay. Fine. That's fine. And then Picard and lower decks at the yep. bottom. All right. There you go, folks. Uh, hopefully, I'm, Lance. I'm sure that was for you. Hopefully, some other people found it interesting as well. <laughs> Radically different layout. Um. And honestly, I mean, I, I like Next Gen too. I I actively did not like Picard. I there I liked the first couple of episodes of the first season when it was establishing stuff, and there were some very cool ideas that just didn't really pay off. And of course, you know, the, for both the finales of season one and season two of Picard, both had basically tearful goodbyes with certain characters, and I thought those were handled very very well. And though just those scenes almost elevate the whole show. But there's so much and for such a short season to have so much meandering and dead end stories that go nowhere and don't really tie into any kind of greater narrative, it's yeah, I'm really kinda of disappointed. 
Um, and Gen 2, because it's her next to last. And still, Lower Decks, to me, it's everything. I mean, Lower Decks is just like a super turbocharged, everything that's great about Star Trek, just crammed into 28-minute-long episodes. No faff, no fluff, handling really weighty star, or, you know, science fiction-y stuff. Uh, you know... Uh, tons of fan service, which I'm a fan, so I love that. But also really interesting and engaging characters who are um, definitely growing in meaningful ways while still sticking to the episodic nature. That's one thing that's certainly the case um, that Picard and Discovery are both proving. The current showrunners are having a very, very difficult time doing long-form storytelling. And then new Strange New Worlds comes along and said, hey, how about we just do episode of the week things? And it was like, yes! Oh my god, you're really good at that! Do that! So... Yeah. Yeah. And and again, Lower Decks is doing the same thing as well. Lower Decks has very slight interconnected. Oh, well, there's like some stuff in the background that's, you know, connecting all these. You know, there's like a there's an overarching story, but it's so in the background. We're just doing episodes of the week. Yeah. And I think uh, I think it serves that show very well too. And I think just maybe overall Star Trek is better served at, in more episodic and less long-form storytelling. But anyway, uh, there you go. Uh, Lance, you asked for it, you got it. Two lists. Which one did you like more? Alrighty. And, um, but, and it says, I'm right there with you. Enterprise, extremely underrated. I was going through all the shows. I heard nothing about how bad it was, and I was generally blown away by how much I love that show. It's third favorite after Deep Space Nine yeah. and Next Gen. It sounds like you like Jen's list a little bit more than mine. Yeah. And that's okay. Uh, it's all, any Star Trek is good Star Trek. Alrighty. Next up, I think we are at the end. Uh, Ryan at, Ryan says he was so glad to hear another Dire Straits fan in the house. Seems to be so few of us, at least in the States. I didn't discover them until the late 80s after a mid-decade boom. Uh, but I about wore out my Brothers in Arms tape. Uh, though it doesn't get as much play on my stare anymore, making movies uh, might be my top 10 or even top 5 album. Uh, pretty much the same thing. Yes, obviously Brother in Arms and... Uh, I mean, what was it? The I can't think of the titles, but you know... Money for Nothing was their first hit, but then I mean Brothers Arms. What was the what was the one that was so huge? Uh, but anyway, yes, I I got all the albums after that. But the other thing for me, a big part of it too, is my dad really liked it. To me, it's always I've talked about this in the past on the show. How in the seventies I listened to nothing but country and western. That was my entire experience. And to me, Dire Straits, you know, they are definitely a rock band, but they do feel kind of closer to some of that kind of bluesy tones that are kind of part of my childhood and I know my dad really liked it too so you know that's why it's a really important band for me also Jen just hates money for nothing because she hates the line chicks for free and I always think it's checks for free I'm going to look it up right now once and for I think it's supposed to be drinks for free uh right um it sounds like chicks for free dire straits chicks for free money for nothing all right that's what I want all right okay there's the lyrics we're going to do... Yep, it is Chicks for Free. Oh. And that always drove Jen nuts. And, I mean, bear in mind, it is a satirical song. They are saying, this lifestyle is bad. We disapprove of this. They're, they're not trying to glorify it. They're trying to say, look, this is all terrible. Um, you know, well, actually, it's, it's, it's a multi-layered song because it's saying, you know, it's, it's actually telling the story of a couple of, of low-rent construction workers or movers or something like that. Or like, just saying, look at all these, you know, rich pop stars with their money for nothing and their chicks for free. But, you know, it's, it's satirical of that. And it's also satirical of the guys who are just sitting around complaining all the time, too. So it's a deeper song. There's more to it. Mm-hmm. It's, it's not espousing that chicks for free is a good thing. But that line always just turned Jen off of Dire Straits so much. There, there was no going. But anyway, uh, so I think that was it, folks. Not as many uh, personal Q's and A's this month. So send questions to questions at rado.com. Before we do, on the way out, Jen's got some words of wisdom, which I believe you said is from Tolkien, correct? Yes, yep. it is Gandalf. What? Oh, and I just accidentally 
shrinking it down, went back to the top. Here we go. What does Gandalf have to say, honey pie? Ah, I found it is the small, everyday deeds of ordinary folk that keep the darkness at bay. Small acts of kindness and love. All right, those are your words of wisdom. Do you have anything more to say about that? Yeah, since there's a war you, going on. Do you want to? All right. Do you want to scroll down? I just thought this was really touching, actually. Okay. I found this on Facebook, and maybe it's not true, but, you know, how would you tell? Yep. Anyway, um, the following was told to reporter by a man who escaped Mariupol. I left the bomb shelter and saw a car with keys in the ignition near a store. I watched it for two hours and waited for the owner. I didn't wait. I took my family, got in the car, and drove to Vinitsa to visit relatives. I found a a phone number in the glove compartment and called the owner and told him, I am sorry I stole your car. I saved my family. And the owner said, thank God, don't worry, I have four cars. I took my family out in my Jeep. The rest of the cars I filled with fuel and left in different places with the keys in the ignition and the number in the glove compartment. I have received calls back from all the cars. There will be peace. See you. Take care. So there's a lot of good out there, even though there's a lot of bad, too. Okay. Let's have some dogs. Do we have dogs? We have a few dog pictures. Not very many. Melanie says, here's a picture of my oldest dog, a Warabi. He's a prom- she's a Pomeranian from Japan, playing parks with me and my son and his wife. Oh. Uh, so there's Warabi, uh, a cutie. Yeah. And I assume is that the sun hiding in the background, as I can kind of <laughs> see. And then there's some parks action down there. Cute. Parks play properly with more than two, because it's unfortunately not the greatest two-player game, but that's a cutie patootie. And then, of course, there's the uh, two Yorkie boys, Kaipo and Yuki. Kaipo is now 15 months, and Yuki, who is three. And they are, as always, oh. adorbs. Totally Super adorable. Cute. Yep. Super cute. Look at that. 15 oh. months. That is ridiculously cute. All righty. And oh, continuing. Excellent. Yep. So cute. And this picture, I actually I couldn't tell you, which is, I assume the one on the left is the younger one, you reckon? Oh, well, one's got shorter mustache than the yeah, other. Yeah, that could just be a trick of the haircut, but adorable. Absolutely adorable. We've never talked about Yorkies. Why is that? I mean, they're certainly so convenient they, size-wise. Yeah, they you are You can take them on a cute. plane and stuff. Yep. Um... I think it's been on my radar. Just, mm. you know, having... I mean, how can it not be? Look at them. I know, they're Look adorable. At Alrighty, and then Ross had to include a cat picture. Here is Vinny with a super amazing wit-wit. <laughs> oh, Vinny! Vinny! Excellent taste. There you go. And that's what we will end it on, folks. Thanks, as always, for watching and or listening. We'll be back again next month. More questions at questions at rado.com. Talk to you later. So long. Oh, bye-bye. Bye. Bye.